This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. segments that we do on this show and I'm left thinking to myself and sometimes I actually say has it been a week already I feel like we just did this and yet there are some segments that we do where the gap between consecutive segments feels if not like a lo- a lifetime certainly a long time the hour that you are about to hear is not only a personal favorite of mine, it is not only a key characteristic of what I believe has helped make this show so successful, but it's a, an hour that I feel like we haven't done in six weeks, even though we just did it two weeks ago. That's right. It is time for us to boldly go into space. It is time for us to look at the final frontier with a man who not only has a great voice, but a man who has a great deal of knowledge regarding all things related to space. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back a personal Morano fave, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a podcaster with the Dr. Sky Experience, which you can listen to at redapplepodcastnetwork.com and a contributor to uh, WABC Radio in New York. Steve, it has been a long two weeks. Welcome back. Well, thank you, Frank. Good morning to you and the listeners as we move on to what? The infinite side of midnight for the hour with your okay. And seems like all those, you know, things are moving in our direction to talk about these great subjects. So it's always a privilege and honor to be here. So there are some issues that we talk about relating to space that don't necessarily jive with the geopolitical news that a lot of uh, P1 talk radio listeners might be interested in. And then there's others that dovetail quite nicely. Uh, One of the ones that I think checks off the space topic list and the geopolitical topic list is this mysterious China spy plane that has returned to Earth after a nine-month orbital mission. Dr. Sky, what can you tell us about this airplane? What do we know about it? What's it been doing? And should people be concerned? Well, first of all, Frank, it's interesting to talk about this because it looks like China seemingly copies so many of the different form factors. If you look at some of the military aircraft, like the F-22 Raptor, If you look at their version of that, it looks as if somebody took the plans, whether they got them clandestinely or just simply, you know, copied them. And what does it have to do with the space plane? Well, the Space Force has had for a number of years a little miniature space shuttle called the X-37B space plane. And its mission is pretty much classified. We were told, I don't know how much we can believe, that its intent was to go up and test new new rocket-type engines called xenon power. But now we find out that China has a similar type of space plane, maybe not exactly the same form factor, but it's been operational in space now for some 276 days on its second flight. Back in October of 2022, the space plane somehow, or whatever we call this thing, Chinese space plane technology, ejected something into space, maybe a small surveillance satellite out of the space plane, 
And they also claim, that is, our reconnaissance and intelligence tells us that apparently it docked with a small object, which we know from the NORAD side of the equation, called Object J. How general can you be, right? So what's interesting about the Chinese space plane, who knows what it's really up to? Now, some theories, not, not to go on the jingoistic war side of the whole thing here, but some say that its real intent up there is not only to test you know, new propulsion systems, but that it also has this grappling hook on it that it can actually go next to a satellite, maybe pull in a satellite, or who knows, maybe there's some other nefarious things on there. When you have a grappling arm, you can do a lot of things, maybe damage satellites, but let's not jump to conclusions. But the point I'm trying to make here, very simply, I think it's coming across loud and clear, is that China has advanced so quickly in so many forms of space exploration, it's just mind-boggling. Take a look at the Mars mission that they had. They were the first to do all three types of Mars events, meaning they sent the space probe, they sent a descent module, and they had a rover come out of it, not in a long time period, but all in one fell swoop. So whatever they're doing in space, and by the way, here's another quick side story many people may not know. They examined every single frame of the new satellite launch, of course, the big one that Elon Musk just sent up with Starship. They examined every single video frame to see what went wrong there because they're also developing, very simply, some very high-powered rocket engines, just like the Raptors that are on the you know Starship and Elon Musk rockets. Really interesting what they're doing in space. It certainly is. And by the way, I was remiss in not giving our telephone number. If people would like to uh, ask Dr. Sky a question, you could certainly do so at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. In terms of why China is becoming so aggressive in terms of being a space-faring, space-exploring nation when that wasn't necessarily their interest years ago. Do we have an idea? Something tells me it's not all about science, that they have, I don't want to make it sound too sinister, but they have some sort of ulterior motive other than just exploration. Are there theories about why China has gotten so aggressive in space exploration? Well, I think you've answered it pretty much. I mean, in your opinion and many other people's opinion, they're doing things to protect their homeland and also maybe what? Take homeland or take other people's homelands, I should say. But the interesting thing about it is it's done in a different way. Like look at the whole Taiwan situation, which could take hours. And I'm sure you've had great guests talking about the potential or the nearly coming invasion by the People's Republic of China to the island nation of Taiwan. But In the space arena, I think they do it primarily for the military side of the equation. Because remember, most if not all of what China does in space is not a civilian type of space program. Like we have here when we have what Starlink is doing, you know, Elon Musk with the whole program of SpaceX and also Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin. So I think it's more for the military because their space station, which is Tiangong, Tiangong, and by the way, I just watched it the other night. You can see it just about any clear night. It sails across the sky as a bright star-like object. And when I point that out to people, like friends and neighbors, they go, oh, no, that's an airplane. I said, oh, no, that's China's latest monster spaceship. So I do think they're doing it for surveillance. They're doing it for many military reasons, all because it's under the house of their military and the whole military doctrine. How do, And we're going to get into what you can see coming up with the, our live sky report shortly. Sure. But how do people know if something they're seeing in the, the night sky, obviously you've got a little bit more of a trained eye than most of us, but for people that are looking up and see something, how do they know if it's a space station like the one that you described or an sure. airplane or something else? 
Well, good. It's a very good question, Frank. But but here's the simple thing. I look at so many things in the sky, and I see them, and many times they could be aircraft. Not necessarily do all aircraft have, you know, positive blinking flashing lights. If they're way up in the sky, you may not be able to discern that. But the simplest way to do it, and I always promote this website because it's a free thing and everybody should put it on their phone, and I'm sure many have. It's just heavens-above.com. You get the screen. You put in your your city, where you're located, and lo and behold, voila, you've got this whole listing of spacecraft that you can see and always go to the ones that are brighter in magnitude and making it simple. The higher the, the higher the number in magnitude, in this case on the plus side, is fainter. So you want things that have like a zero or a negative number in magnitude. And the space station, my goodness, it's as bright as Venus many times. Tiangong is easy to see, like I mentioned, with the naked eye. It gets as bright as some of the brighter planets. But it's really hard sometimes to tell because, remember, the thing's going 17,000 miles an hour. But the simplest and easiest way to answer it is these spacecraft seemingly have steady light not like the you know flashing and blinking lights that you'd see on most aircraft. Mm. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with John in Freehold. Hello there, John. John, we got you? Good morning, John. Good All morning. Right. Um, I just had a quick question about, uh, uh, Steve, have you ever heard of uh, Project Gateway? No, yes, I have. If you're referring to the space station that's to be built on the outside of the moon as a gateway to when the astronauts go to the surface of the moon, if that's what you're talking about, it would be a space station in orbit around the moon as a transition point so they don't have to do the long-duration mission back to the Earth. Is that where you're going with that, or that's what I would call the No, there's actually a, a different uh, project. Oh, know, I'm sorry. Um, sorry, it was done by the CIA. But they figured out that I'm um, using um, binaural beats, uh, two different frequencies in each ear, will activate your brain, and um, you're able you're able to um, enter different dimensions. I was wow. curious if. Yeah, I'm not up on that either, John. No, I don't have anything to share, but I thought he was referring to the Gateway Space Station. I'm very interested in that, though, John. If you have any information that you could could send me, I'd love to read it and and explore it on a uh, a, a future program. 800-848-9222. Good question. I did want to ask you about this, Steve, and uh, mm-hmm. I think John Katzmatidis might have asked you about it on the Cats Roundtable Sunday yes. morning, and that is this uh, recent reports of ancient riverbeds on Mars, and there are uh, all indications are because of this Mars Perseverance rover yes. that uh, there could have been water on Mars a long time ago. That was very similar to the kind of water that uh, that we have on Earth. Uh, what do we know about this, Steve? And are we seeing, in looking at Mars, Earth's distant, distant future? Well, it's interesting. Where did the water go on Mars is usually the question that I get in many of the programs we do. And obviously the answer is nobody knows. But the recent revelation by this particular spacecraft, Perseverance, traveling through an area called Gale Crater, and they did this for a reason. They looked at all the topographic images that were taken by orbiting Martian spacecraft, and they said, ah, over here is an area that looks like it's the bottom of a delta or a riverbed. Now, I can't say, or nor, nor can anybody actually confirm that they've drilled and found, you know, flowing water there. But the remnant of that whole, you know, story of where water came or maybe was on the surface of Mars definitely is more likely to be in that shallow area like dry clay or rock. 
So what they think they found is evidence of a real true riverbed that's on the surface of the planet Mars. As I mentioned to Mr. Katsimatidis on the show, the interesting thing is if there is water on Mars, it's more than likely subterranean. And that's going to take a long time for exploration. But the answer to the question of where did the water go on Mars, it's more than likely, Frank, that a large asteroidal object slammed into the surface of Mars. The deepest depression, if you look at a Martian globe, is a region called Hellas. And that's more likely the remnant of a large asteroidal body that slammed into the surface of Mars. And at that time, maybe hundreds of millions of years ago, we're not sure, may have vaporized all of the water on the surface in this giant, like, nuclear explosion. And now revelations are talking about one of the two Martian moons, the two that were discovered in the Washington, D.C. area in 1877 by Asaph Hall. One is called Phobos, a strange object that may have a, you know, more hollowness to it. But the one that they think might have come from an impact, and it actually came out as a piece of Mars, is the other small Martian moon called Deimos. So... We don't know if there's water. It's probably under the surface. 800-848-9222. William is in Westchester. Hello, William. Hi. Back in the 50s, uh, high-altitude bombers used to be used to launch rocket planes. Wondering, uh, at high altitude, you've overcome the effects of gravity. Why not uh, routinely launch satellites from high-altitude planes? And for that matter, uh, modules could be launched uh, to support a moon base, uh, sending up... uh, so supplies and equipment. Why, why don't they ever uh, approach that point? Uh, William, strategy? they've tried it, and actually they had an experience where one of the 747s that was, that was actually equipped with a satellite delivery system, but unfortunately the funding ran out. But if you really think about it, it's really not the most economical way to launch satellites into space. Still, if you look at you know how much it costs to lift, say, 1,000 pounds into space or 200 pounds into space, it still goes with the ground-based rocket, chemical rockets that we have today. But it's interesting, if you look in the history of aviation, I'm studying this and actually was a big fan of the pilots that flew this. It was the XB-70, the most amazing bomber that the Kennedy administration actually got funding for, for two of these. And I'm so near and dear to that topic, because if you take a look at an XB-70 Valkyrie, I have one on my desk here. I know a long time ago, William, I had an interview with one of the test pilots there, and they were going to use that particular platform not only as a nuclear bomber. Curtis LeMay wanted to see it, but Robert McNamara wanted to cancel it because he said we're wasting our money of launching anything off of an airplane like that or dropping bombs because of ICBMs. But if people take a look, Frank, at the XB-70 Valkyrie, I'm kind of like uh, really stuck on that airplane because it, it, it flew at Mach 3 or more. We had the honor of knowing the different pilots that flew it, and one of them sadly had an in-flight accident back in June of Mm. 1966. A good friend of ours, Clay Lacey, who owns one of the biggest private jet corporations in America, he was a pilot on this Learjet where they got somewhat semi-okay to have all these GE engine jets fly together with the B-70. And uh, this gentleman who flew the F-104, they all got kind of close the vortex of that giant aircraft, William, this is fascinating. He got, Joe Walker got caught up in the vortex of that. It slammed itself into the B-70, tore it to pieces. Oh, my. And it crashed. And my brother, with his whole group, photorecon.net, if you want to see some great aviation stories, they actually went to the crash site and still dug up. I have it here on my desk, some of the titanium pieces of that. So they actually put a little memorial out there to those two pilots 
that crash. Could you imagine this giant 276-foot-long monster bomber coming down out of the sky in flames and pieces? And one of the guys got out, but Al White, this is really quickly, I'll mention it, he hit the ground when the chute system didn't work inside this encapsulation module. I'd get a load of this, 42 Gs. Can you imagine hitting no, the ground? No, I can't. <laughs> he survived. But anyway, William, I know that's a long answer to a good story, but the reason they simply don't use the, this type of aircraft to launch rockets, it's not as economical as you would probably think. And this has been tried with a – I'm trying to think of the guy who's the billionaire. See, I'm, I'm losing it here. The gentleman who had the uh, the big 747s, he had the airline. Uh, are British. you thinking of Richard Branson? Yes. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I couldn't think. He had this aircraft, the 747, that actually tried to do this, but I don't know if funding ran out or it wasn't as economic – but the bottom line is we see chemical rockets still. Just ask Elon Musk, and he'll show you the numbers. It's still more economical to do it from the ground than up there, even though the atmosphere is conducive to launchers. Since you mentioned that era, the Cold War, the 50s, uh, some of the people involved, you even mentioned nukes. There's something, there's a forgotten aspect of American history, which we actually didn't come to learn until about 20 years ago. But I have to think it's one of the most fascinating what ifs in American history. And that has to do with Project uh, A119. If people are not familiar with this, Steve, what was Project A119? Well, let's start off with the answer goes like this. When we found out, that is America, that Sputnik was launched. And by the way, when people saw Sputnik in the sky, in other words, if you see something over your head, like you see bombers would drop bombs, people, of course, have right to be you know, nervous and scared or prepared. Well, when you had this thing from television at the time and radio saying the Soviets have now put up this spacecraft called so, you know, Sputnik, you weren't actually seeing the Sputnik satellite. It was so tiny. But it was actually the Samyorka rocket, which was the booster rocket that you saw going around the Earth. But here's the story. Since we were so concerned, if not the word nervous, about what the Soviets could do, oh, my goodness, now they could drop an atomic bomb on our head, they thought, and they probably could have. So Project A119 was this concocted project, kind of crazy, and it goes back to authors. This is bizarre. I read this, and I had to read it three times and check it. Apparently, this plan, the plan was this. They were going to, the government, the United States government, detonate a thermonuclear weapon on the surface of the moon. They send the rocket there and send the hydrogen bomb. You know, the hydrogen bomb power is a much more massive power than the simple atomic bomb. Both are pretty nasty. But they would fire a rocket to the moon along the Terminator. Now, what's that? That's the light and dark line you see on the moon. If you have a telescope, the shadows are best and you're, you're in love. They would detonate this hydrogen bomb for the main purpose of, quote, scaring the Soviets to know that we weren't a bunch of dummies, that we had the capability to actually do things and destroy things. Now, the Soviets, being smart, too, they had a similar plan known as E-4. But what I was so amazed about is one of the authors of the original project that we talked about, A-119, was none other than Carl Sagan. Go figure. Isn't that a bizarre thing? And I want to be clear. This plan that uh, to drop a thermonuclear weapon on the moon, this (laughs) is not science fiction. This is not conspiracy stuff. This is fact. This is fact. Now, this is so bizarre because think about this, everyone listening to this. Pay attention to this because you already know this. But here we go. I'll say it for the record. When you would have detonated a nuclear weapon on the surface of the moon, because the lunar surface is one-sixth the gravity of the Earth, 
all that residual material, and let's just speculate the power of that hydrogen bomb. Let's say it was up to 15 megatons, which is probably pretty characteristic, the average you know, hydrogen bomb delivery power. That material, where's it going to go? So you're going to send fragmentation all up out of the lunar surface since the gravity is so weak. Where's it going to go, Frank? It's going to spiral out since the moon is going around the Earth into this long tendril like a long snake of, of debris. And guess where it's coming? To a neighborhood near you and I. <laughs> Imagine wow. that. Wow. You're going to have these chunks as big as a car maybe coming through the atmosphere. So obviously cooler heads prevailed, but no, that wasn't sci-fi. That was actually a Amazing. plan. Crazy. Amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll get back to your calls in a moment. Phil, Neil, Robert, Hudson, Angela, and everybody else that's holding, we'll uh, try and get to as many of your questions as we can. Still have three open lines if you want to uh, if you want to jump on board with a question. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is the other side of, this is the infinite side of midnight, I should say. With Dr. Sky, I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. stars we have the man that knows the stars as well as anyone on radio he certainly sounds better than anyone on radio the one and only steve cates we call him dr sky if you're interested in some of the subjects that we're talking about today you're going to want to check out his podcast the dr sky experience which you can uh, listen to on red apple podcast network.com that's red apple podcast network.com a lot of people queuing up uh, to talk with you, Steve. Let's try and get to as many of these as we can. Our buddy Neil is in Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Doc. You're the Good best morning. doctor in the world. The only doctor hey. I can talk to without worrying that you're going to put on an examination glove. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I love you, Neil. How you doing there? <laughs> I, got, I got a double question for you. Yes, sir. Number one, uh, when Reagan was president and the Russians started with the space stuff, he mm-hmm. He scared them by saying, you know, we have Star Wars and we're going to send up ships and actually yes. control space so we could shoot down anything they have. Did that ever really happen? Absolutely. And that was the main reason that I think the whole thing fell apart with the Soviet Union, too, because President Reagan, as you mentioned very accurately and correctly, he talked about we have the capability now to do things that are just literally like science fiction, but they're not. They're reality. So things, of course, that we'll never be able to know about. I mean, there's certainly different type of weapons. They develop what they call kinetic energy weapons, Earth language. They had these objects that were in space that you could fire. And one of the projects was something called Rods from God. I know this sounds like science fiction. They would have this satellite in space that had the capability of firing. And any of our Army friends out there, I'm an Army veteran myself, might know this if they were artillery or tankers. Inside some of those projectiles, they have these flechette-type little missiles. They're made out of, like, solid tungsten. 
Well, what rods from gods were, or rods from God, that a spacecraft in space wouldn't have to use any type of atomic weapon. It would be able to fire from space one of these like larger scale tungsten rods, and it would come through the atmosphere at such great speed, and it would just obliterate anything without using a chemical weapon or even an explosive charge. You could add an explosive charge. But for the tankers and people who are Army veterans, and you served, let's say, in the tank corps, you'll know that if you looked at one of these, I had one of these in my office once. Somebody gave me one. It's this long thing that weighs about 50 pounds, and it comes out of the, you know, the bore of that tank. But the flechette, meaning it has like a plastic enclosure, it opens up. It comes out of there at over like 5,000 feet per second. And let's say that tungsten rod or a depleted uranium is what they actually used. Ouch. It would hit the side of the tank, go through it, and incinerate every single thing inside it. And not to get too graphic this early in the morning, Neil. But all you'd see, the hole go in. On the other side, there was a red stream of uh, vapor. You can figure out what was happening inside that tank when it heated it up. So they had these type of weapons. And it's probably so many other things, laser weapons. The military developed a large uh, 747. A good friend of mine was the chief scientist on it. It was called the Airborne Laser System. This big 747 with a funny-looking nose had this turret. And supposedly its capability was to shoot down a chemical. It was a chemical laser. Imagine that, Frank, from the air. You could fire this laser at incoming ICBMs. They scrapped it. So, Neil, sorry for the long explanation, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, but you had a second part. Yes, the second part is that, uh, you know, when Frank goes up into space, he <laughs> loves to smoke a good Dutch master, and he likes his quarterhouse steak. So I never heard of any animals going up into space, except yes. the monkey. The Russians, I think, sent up a monkey astronaut. No, I actually. To eat, yeah, uh, the ship. <laughs> but, no, but it's so funny you bring it up. Animals in space, you know, the, very, the Soviets at the time, they have, I mean, I have this book called Space Dogs. And my, my better half and I have a beautiful little Bichon dog. She gets better treatment, Frank, than I get. Oh, I know. She believe goes, to the, me. She goes to the groomer like twice a month and gets imported food flown in. So, hey, how about that? And I eat the, you know, the TV dinner still. But anyway, if you look at this, Neil, this is so interesting. There were dogs. Laika was this dog that the Russians actually found on the streets of Moscow. This is the story. They wanted a tough dog. So if you did one of these, you know, like Disney movies, the cartoon thing, you'd find this dog walking and talking real tough. But Laika, God bless, it was one of the, if not the first dog in space. And, of course, Laika perished in space. So many other dogs. There was a bunch of little cute Russian names. And, uh, yeah, the Russians uh, actually had animals. And a quick story, Neil. I know I'm going on into the infinite side of midnight here, right, Frank? Hey, you're welcome to stay for a second hour. I'm not kicking you (laughs) out. No, no. Here's the interesting story, Neil. There was a story, and I talked to a gentleman named Gunther Vent. Who was he? He was the pad leader. He put every astronaut, when you go up in that, like, elevator, he was the guy, a German gentleman from World War II. He came here with the thickest German accent. He, he passed on, but he was a great guy. I did an interview with him. He said to me, he put every astronaut in those days, even the Apollo, into the capsules. And Wally Schirra one day wondered where, you know, he didn't see Gunther. So he just said in his comical way, I wonder where Gunther went. But the point of reason I'm mentioning this is, this is so amazing how they, this whole thing came together with the space program. They had these monkeys or small little, I guess they were just monkeys. And apparently some of them got a little wild. So some of the congressmen and senators came down there and they were praying that the monkeys would be nice and wouldn't do anything foolish or bite them because they wanted funding. So this is a, you know, a family program, so I'll say it the, the, the politically correct way. 
Apparently what happened is, as one of the congressmen or senators got close to the cage, the monkey actually scooped up some excrement and threw it <laughs> at one of, the, as one of the members of Congress. So somehow they still got their funding. But I don't know. Maybe the monkeys knew something. <laughs> hey, but w- in terms of Neil's question about yes. what astronauts generally eat in space, right. do you have any idea what the diet of an astronaut is like, what kind of food they're eating? Well, I do know this. They still use Tang. No, I'm kidding. Of course not. <laughs> hey, I should. like Tang. I did, too. But anyway, seriously, I'm not too sure what that diet is, but it's not the kind of miserable food that they had in the early 60s and 70s. This obviously has the ability, I'm sure, to create nourishing meals. But you have to do this. You have to have meals, I gather, in space. And let's be you know, real easy on how I say this here, politically correct. You have to have low-residue meals in space for obvious reasons. Because the toilet system on the ISS, this is actually comical to some and sad to others. They replaced the toilet a while ago with like a million-dollar toilet. Imagine that if you got to have paid monthly payments. But the reason for the million-dollar toilet is you have to make a perfect seal, and you know the rest of the story of how it goes. But in space, you want what? You want low-residue-type meals. So I would gather, I'm not, you know, uh, the uh, person who understands that side, the dietician. But you have to have low residue type stuff. You don't want stuff that's going to cause a lot of harm because when stuff floats around up there, that's not a nice experience. No, 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 that's for sure. Uh, (laughs) One of the issues you first brought to my attention, and I suspect the attention of many of our listeners, and I really never even heard the term before, or if I heard it, it went one ear and out the other. It's uh, the solar cycle that we're now in, solar cycle 25 And uh, there's a lot of people saying that solar activity may peak a year earlier than we thought. Remind folks, what exactly is uh, Solar Cycle 25? What does that mean? And where are we with respect to it right now? Well, every 11 and a half years or so, the sun supposedly seethes and then kind of, you know, up and down this ebb and flow of sunspot activity. But here's what's happening. Solar cycle 25, since you go back and multiply it out, that's how long we've been tracking solar cycles. But if you look at the age of the sun, Frank, 4 billion years, we've only just scratched the surface. So what's happening right now as we speak, the live report, the sun just belched out an M9.6 flare just hours ago. And I'm going to build this up here, but it's not dramatic. It's fact. There's a massive sunspot group that's coming around the southeastern edge of the sun. It already blew out a massive flare when it wasn't even on the visible side of the sun. So a few days from now, maybe tomorrow, I'll get the solar telescope out. And people just go to spaceweather.com. If you do that right now, you'll be able to see the live image. It might be on the left edge of the sun. But what's happening is these sunspot chains, when they snap, the magnetic fields can be unstable. The M9.6 flare that just happened hours ago actually induced some static and some interference over North America for HF frequency. So if you're flying, say, from Los Angeles, New York to like London, or you're flying the bigger routes, let's say Los Angeles all the way to Kuwait or Dubai, you're going up near the poles. So HF radio is being interfered with the higher frequencies. But here's something interesting. There was a massive event on the sun on April 24th. And I think we talked about it in our last uh, adventure here on this infinite program. There was this massive event on the sun which causes the auroras to be seen lower latitudes than probably anywhere. People in Florida were seeing them. But it wasn't because of a sunspot group. There are these things that float above the sun. There are massive fields of cooler material called filaments. 
And if you see these images, you know, with these solar telescopes, you see these big black lines. Some of them are as long as the distance from the Earth to the moon. When one of those filaments, Frank, comes up above the sun's atmosphere, supposedly, that's what they call it, and slams back into the sun, all that energy that's released is a different type of flare. It's called a Hyder flare. So that was the, the, the culprit behind the big event that happened on the April 24th date, causing a geomagnetic storm of about a G4, almost maybe even a G5. There's more to come. So that cycle, to answer your question, may not peak as early as some say, but it could be way more intense, not to alarm people, but certainly not off the charts as some predictions were that we're going to see these massive solar storms. Nobody really knows for sure. Not to be uh, too selfish here about what this means for us, but we have seen solar flares interfere with things like uh, radio transmission from time to time. Is there anything about this current solar cycle and the level of solar activity within it that will cause people to have, I don't know, different radio reception than they normally are used to? Well, in the AM band, and again, let's pray to God we keep the AM band. I know that's a big campaign here on this particular oh, station yeah, and in sure. many stations. Hey, I mean, we all grew up with it, not just from the love affair of AM radio. You know, we'd lay in bed when we were kids and we'd just tune into these stations. You could say, hey, Mom and Dad, I just heard a station, if you like, say, in New York. You heard somebody out there in uh, the Midwest or even down south in Texas. But the thing is, these solar storms, they do have this deleterious effect on the atmosphere and Now, with so many spacecraft up there, just imagine in the 1950s, before the advent, let's see, early 50s, of nothing in the sky but, you know, beautiful stars and meteors and such and comets. Now the sky is filled with stuff, all susceptible to even the slightest quirk from radiation from the sun. But we find out that during this period of solar activity, when we see the solar activity peak, we're seeing something where the cosmic ray induction into the solar system is either higher or lower So when you have a higher solar activity, there's a change in the amount of cosmic rays that are coming in. So the sun, even though it's peaking, could have a good effect on us as far as giving us less of these cosmic rays that can be really dangerous uh, for people who fly in airplanes all the time too many times. You're getting slight radiation, not to scare people, not to go on a commercial airplane, but there's rad detectors that one group has where they can actually tell you how much radiation you're getting if you're punching way above that precious atmosphere layer. Think about it this way. Many have described the troposphere where the, you know, the weather sphere of the Earth. If you took an apple, the troposphere is only as thick as the thinness of the skin on an apple. Isn't that incredible? That precious layer is that thin, and that's so much vital for us to breathe and protect us from the ultraviolet that comes from space. That is for sure. 800 Two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Phil is in the boogie down Bronx. Hello, Phil. Yeah, hi. Uh, I've got a question for Doctor Sky. Good morning, sir. Thank uh, you. Concerning the two theories of the universe, the two prominent theories, you've got mm-hmm. the steady state theory and you've got the Big Bang. Yeah. I understand the battle is still raging on, and they're just, they're trying to rework the cosmological constant one way or the other. What's the latest developments? Do you know of anything interesting? I can answer this. No, Phil, your question is absolutely wonderful. And in the time allotted, here's what I would say. Fred Hoyle, a scientist, came up with the concept of a steady state theory, which was counter to what we know of a Big Bang, and I call it the Big Expansion because it wasn't really a big, uh, you know, Big Bang. It was an expansion out of nothing. 
So what we're talking about here is very interesting. What we're trying to define in physics and quantum physics, this is, this is the conundrum that even Einstein couldn't even figure out. We're trying to take the special theory of relativity and general relativity, which that pretty much has been proven to be accurate. You know, speed of light, the, the, the excess, what's beyond the speed of light, we're really not sure. But when you try to meld quantum physics into the theory with relativity, scientists are still at this great conundrum. They're trying to come up with the TOE, the theory of everything, in which you can balance out and make the whole theory work for how the universe works. It's kind of a little egotistical for humans to think that way, don't you think, Phil, that we're going to figure this out? Because it's so complicated. So how do you get quantum physics to work in the general relativity side that's the difficulty in space right now. In other words, what we're finding out is that one and one may not be two in the simple math thing when you're talking about quantum physics. And the final thing I'll mention, Frank, to Phil, is this is very interesting. Now we're seeing evidence that this whole concept called quantum entanglement, very detailed subject, simply means this, that now Einstein may not have been totally correct in saying that nothing can exceed the speed of light. It's that if you had a switch on one side of our galaxy, let's say the whole thing is 150,000 light years, you would take that light beam 150,000 years to go to the other side. But in this concept called, uh, it's just so amazing that it would happen instantaneous. So what's the mechanism that's driving it if it's not light? Something that we don't understand in quantum physics called quantum entanglement. There's many realms to discuss and many dimensional planes. I hope that answers some of them, Phil. Thank you, (laughs) Phil. Um, There was a headline that uh, caught my interest the other day because recently, I think it was on Jeopardy or maybe somewhere else, there was a a trivia question that I came across that had to do with the first Voyager mission and uh, all the interesting things from the 1970s that that people were hopeful about for that first Voyager mission. Now... We have Voyager 2, and the headline last week said NASA is keeping Voyager 2 going until at least 2026 by okay. tapping into backup power. Explain this for us, Steve. Well, the spacecraft, the twin spacecraft, if we all remember what we were doing in 1977, and I lived in New York that time, and many people listening who are listening right there at WABC, we know in July, I think it was, we had the great blackout. So we remember, not the original blackout, like 65, but the one then. So think of how long ago that was. So these two spacecraft were launched out into space in two different directions. Robotic spacecraft that are powered. They have a a nuclear power system on them, so they obviously can't grab solar energy from the distance that they are. So one of them, Voyager 2, is about 12 billion miles, not 12 billion light years, but 12 billion miles from us. It takes about 17 hours to send a signal to turn on whatever instruments are still working. God bless it. But the Voyager 1 is actually 14 billion miles out into space. So Voyager 2 is getting a little bit of a boost because you would have thought that the lifetime of those two spacecraft would have been over quite a long time ago. Even the scientists are very amazed that these things are still working. And it goes out into the deepest part of the solar system or beyond now. It moved out from an area we call the heliopause. And what is that? The sun has this stream of particles called solar wind, like if you had a garden hose to make it sound simple. The farthest reach of that garden hose that you could push with the finest little water stream, you know, the most powerful. The solar system is filled with the solar wind from the sun. But these two spacecraft have moved beyond the energy field of the sun. So they're headed out into space. And I forget the exact, I'm a sci-fi lover too, 
but one of the Star Trek movies. Well, Star actually, Trek, the motion picture. There you go. And it took what? It turned the thing into this object. I think her name was Persis Kambata, the uh, Indian yeah. actress. Yeah, yeah, Viger. Viger, you got it. So Viger became what? This intelligent being, almost, uh, artificial being, out in space. And little did they know until, I guess, the end of the movie, and I guess I'm being a movie spoiler if you haven't seen it, they found out that that was what? A spacecraft that was sent from none other than planet Earth, the pale blue dot. Yeah, no one's made it to the end of that film. It's the film that never ends. So uh, I, I don't think you worried about. We shouldn't worry about spoiling well, the end of that film. I, I love I right. love Star Trek, and there's a lot of good parts to that. But that yeah. movie is slow. All right, uh, we're going to continue in a moment with your phone calls for Doctor Sky eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the infinite side of midnight, and much like Star Trek, the motion picture, the human adventure is just beginning. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone. Without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own, Blue Moon, you knew just what I was there for, you heard me saying a prayer for someone I really could care for. Any blue moons in our future? Well, we've got Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, to uh, fill us in on that. Uh, Steve, uh, we'll get back to the phones in just a minute, but uh, tell me what can we look forward to in the sky-gazing month of May? Well, perfect segue, Frank. Early this morning, the 17th, wherever people are listening, if you have a clear view of the pre-dawn sky, get set for this. There's going to be an amazing event. The moon, which will only be about 5% illuminated, you know, the thin little crescent, it will occult or cover up the planet Jupiter. Now, you have to be like for the East Coast, sunrise, let's say, in New York is like 5.37 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. But if you get out there about 45 minutes before sunrise, you have a clear sky. Now, let me be always honest here. This will only be about five degrees up in the sky. So if you have big buildings in the way, you may not be able to see it or clouds. But if you do, like here in Arizona, at around 4.18 our time, Mountain Standard Time, since we don't do daylight saving time, you would see the moon and the planet Jupiter as if it was the Jupiter would be hugging the left edge, the bright side, literally on the edge. And it will disappear for much of the west. In the eastern part of the nation, it'll be happening during sunrise. So in other words, unless you're a super trained observer with a telescope, but here out in the mountain states, you'll be able to see it pop out the other side, the dark side, at 5.12 a.m. So simply, if you have a chance to see early morning, this morning, coming up in just a few hours, get out those binoculars. You've got a clear sky. You're going to see a beautiful conjunction or maybe what they call an occultation when the moon is going to eclipse Jupiter. Very beautiful, very rare. The stuff of biblical stories like that, 
of what the three wise men apparently saw portending and, you know, bringing on the birth of Jesus. Interesting. Well, absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought this to my attention because last night I started a cigar outside and I had to stop it so that I could brush my son's teeth and put him to bed. And that cigar remains half unfinished in my backyard. And now I have an excuse to go out and finish (laughs) that cigar after the show as I do some moon gazing. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. All right, uh, Steve, you're in a little bit of trouble potentially because Uh – Two weeks ago, I uh, I brought to your attention a call that I had gotten the previous week from a very, very, um, I don't know how else to put it, sexy-sounding young lady asking if you were married. Oh. And um, we played your answer. We gave your answer. But uh, now Jacqueline in Brooklyn has returned with a question. Hopefully it's of a more <laughs> celestial nature. Hello, oh, yeah. Jacqueline. Good morning, Frank, and good morning, Steve. Hey, good morning. Um, I do have a, a follow-up question. So now I got the first answer to my first question, which is if you are available, because <laughs> I think you're very handsome and I think you're brilliant. Well, well that's very um, kind of you. I appreciate that. Uh, my follow-up question is the congressperson that you mentioned the uh, monkey throwing yes. the debris at. I'm curious to know if it was a Democrat or Republican. <laughs> you know, I really don't know that. And that's what we should do on the infinite side of midnight, Frank, is take that question and get an answer, because there is an answer out there. But what would you speculate it to be, just from your own thoughts? I would hope that it was a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. You know, that's interesting. But whoever it was, I kind of feel sorry for that person, because I haven't had anything like that ever thrown at me, and I hope you don't. Yeah, let's, let's not jinx it. Right. Let's not jinx it, Steve. Let's keep it I that haven't way. even had a pie thrown at me, but you're very kind in, in your uh, question and, of course, the comp- compliments. So uh, thank, you. thank you, Jacqueline. 800 <laughs> Hey, Robert has a very interesting question regarding a something that I brought up uh, the other day, um, at least somewhat related to it. Now, I was going to ask you about this as well. And this was about a meteorite that crashed into someone's house in New Jersey. Robert in Suffolk, what's your question? Yes, Dr. Sky and Frank, good morning. Good morning. I was wondering, uh, I saw on TV how people, they hunt for the uh, meteorite fragments that they can find on Earth. And how much are they worth? I guess there's a price range. There and, sure is. Uh, is it by the by the gram, by the ounce? Uh, how, how is that? And well, can you actually keep it? Because the government wants to keep. Great questions. To give that great stuff questions, to Robert. Great questions. But here's the answer: the one that came into the home in in uh, New Jersey, that is the luckiest of finds because you do own it. It's in your home, and this particular meteorite, the what I've you know checked out. It's what they call a chondrite. Now, it's not the rarest of all meteors, meaning it's a type of meteor. Maybe it's got more rocks in it than iron or nickel iron. But some of them, I'm not sure if they go by gram or by pound or what have you, but probably grams. And I know some people out there that actually have what they consider to be material that was blown off of Mars. And if that's true, those are some of the most expensive meteorites. Remember, there's wow. a meteor, meteoroid is when it's flying through space. It's a meteor when it's burning up, and then it's a meteorite if it's down on the ground. We all pretty much know that. But it's so interesting to talk about these things because there was a gentleman. I'm not going to mention his name because he was in a lot of trouble. He'd go all over the world as a meteor expert, went over to Africa, 
dug up this gigantic thing that you'd put in the back of a pickup truck that weighed thousands of pounds. And as he tried to get out of the country, he was arrested <laughs> for taking it's not his property. There was an issue in El Paso when meteors fell around the schoolyard, and the people who found it said that they should be able to keep it. But so said the government. That's not necessarily true. So there was a big court battle. Can you believe this? A court battle over who owns and has rightful ownership of a meteor. But if it lands in your house, like the one in New Jersey, how much is that worth? Well, probably more than it's going to cost them to fix the roof. Oh, good for them. Good for them. Angela in New Jersey has been patiently holding. Hello, Angela. Good morning. Hi, how are you? I enjoyed this part of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I don't know. um, When I was a kid uh, back in the 50s, and it was summertime, so I could stay up late, I would look at the sky a lot. And one evening, there was, you know, the stars and so forth. And all of a sudden, one of them turned a bright orange red. Like on, uh, like it was on fire, and then it started just going as fast as it could across the sky. I thought it was going to hit things. I didn't know they were yeah. millions of miles apart. What was it that I saw? That's well, my it question. could have been it could have been many things. I'll discount that it was an airliner coming down. God forbid it was. It wasn't. I'm sure, but more than likely, and it's again another one that's probably not is a spacecraft entering. More than likely, what you saw, Angela, was a debris, meaning a meteorite or a meteor coming through the sky like a fireball. And I remember back in the 1960s, I think it was April of 66, Frank, we were sitting outside a place in northern New Jersey, and one of the most classic fireballs came out of the sky and actually crashed in Canada. So I think, Angela, what you probably saw was what we consider to be a small fireball in the sky. It probably burned up before it hit the ground, but who knows for sure. Uh, Lines are jammed. I want to squeeze in at least one more call if we can. And for those of you that we don't get to, let me apologize in advance. We're going to do this again in two weeks. John is in Queens. Hello, John. Good morning, John. Hello. Hello, Steve, my old friend from 1977. (laughs) There you go, brother. How are you? I love you. I love you. Uh, (laughs) What do you think about the solar event in Our Lady of Fatima in Fatima, Portugal, 1917? Well, I'll tell you, that's one of the great mysteries and miracles, I think, of the world. But, you know, there's so many things. I think there's also a story right now in Connecticut where somebody has seen something happen in a church where it's obviously not science that's going to explain it. You bet. So what am I saying to everybody and yourself, John? There's things that I'm sure even science can't understand, just like the whole story of the Star of Bethlehem. Maybe these simply are just miracles. Thank you. I love you. Thank you, John. Hey, uh, I know this is an unfair question for me to ask you in only a minute, but I'm going to go ahead and try. The uh, We've been doing a few segments presenting different sides of the chemtrails debate, uh, people mm-hmm. that think they're totally bunk or people that think they're the result of some sort of geoengineering. Have you looked at this at all, and do you have a theory that you care to share? I have, and I'm going to go on the side. I know many people may not like me for this. We may lose our Gallup poll here this morning since we're getting a lot of positives here. But here's what I think. I would think this country would be horrible if it was that nefarious that it was actually injecting poisons into the upper atmosphere. I've talked to so many pilots and interviewed people on this. But you know what, Frank? Always, I'm always open to listen and learn so much more because not every not everybody knows everything. Just like John talked about miracles and strangeness. It's true. But it's always good to be with you on this particular edition of what we call what? The infinite side of it. Uh, Check out Dr. Sky Experience, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. is something that I think has changed over the years. Years ago, I think it was pretty common. Once you were 18 years old, you went off to college and then uh, you lived away at college and then you found another place to live on your own after college. Then increasingly it became, all right, maybe after college you come back home and live for another couple of years. And I think these days, for a variety of circumstances, which we've talked about before, we see people living at home longer and longer, right? And these are not 12-year-olds. These are not 13-year-olds. These are not 14-year-olds. These are adults. These are adults who can vote, who in many cases can purchase a firearm, who in many pay, in many cases can purchase tobacco products, who in many cases can drive, all legally. So we have seen a surge in young adults living at home with their parents. Now, if you're the parent of a 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old that's living at home, what, what should you do? What should you do? How do you handle that? Well, let me tell you what the Archies did. The Archies, Erica and Cody, decided that they were going to charge their 19-year-old daughter rent. They spoke about this on TikTok. All right, so y'all tell us, do you make your graduated high school student pay rent in your house if they don't, if they aren't going to college yet? Tell us what you think. Well, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because my thought is, and our thought together is that since Fred has graduated, couple weeks ago i told her and i had been telling her for the last couple of months that hey june the first your rent's due if you're going to continue to live here i thought that was a little harsh i mean maybe a little leeway 200 bucks a month is plenty cheap to live like a grub in your parents house um i mean that's cheaper than she eats in food exactly well it's 300 if she wants to eat anybody here. eats in food it's 300 a month <laughs> if she wants to eat out of the fridge okay, no. it's 200 if she wants to buy her own groceries so what are y'all's thoughts? Yeah, tell us what you think. What, what do you think about charging your your adult children rent if they're going to... We think it teaches them a good lesson in paying bills. If they're going to reside in your domicile, what, yeah. what are your thoughts? Y'all keep ranching. Keep ranching. That video has racked up, <laughs> you ready for this, 59.7 billion views. Not million, billion. More people have watched that than live on the planet. 
and I'm thinking the article that says it's billion, not million, has got to be an error. But sure enough, everybody is watching this video, and this hashtag, parents charging rent, has um, ignited a fierce debate among parents, among young adults, and among all sorts of people who wonder if this parental decision to charge your once you, your adult child, once they graduate from high school, rent has people on both sides of the issue staking out very passionate ground. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So this couple is from Texas, but this is not that new of a debate. I have been seeing this debate raging for many years. And it's funny, I don't want to get anybody in trouble here, but my wife told me, my wife is one of nine, and my wife told me that when she and all of her siblings turned, I think, 18, maybe even a little younger, but I think it was 18, they were expected, all nine of them, to pay rent, every single one of them. And the, the all of their siblings that still live with my mother-in-law, they all still pay rent. I don't know if they all pay the same rent or if it's based on income or if it's based on expense or what the deal is. And... um When I brought this up with people, they generally tend to fall into one of two camps. They generally tend to fall in the camp of, well, I mean, chances are if they're a young person, whether they're working or whether they're going to school, they are probably trying to save up some money. And by charging them even a nominal rental fee of two or three hundred dollars a month, you're not really helping them save money to move into their own apartment or move into their own house. That's one school of thought. And I'll be honest with you, that's the school of thought that I tend to be closer to. The other school of thought, as you heard from the Archies there, is that this teaches a level of responsibility. This teaches a level of independence. This teaches them that they need to pitch in. My friend, um, my friend Guy, he volunteered to pay his mother rent after he had graduated high school because he said he would felt he felt better about being able to bring girls home to his house and to his bedroom and didn't feel awkward like he was living in his parents' house. He felt more like this was his apartment that he was using and paying rent for and would be able to do all the things that he would generally do in his apartment. Where do you come down on this? 800-848-9222. My view is it depends, right? Obviously, every young person is different um, and I think if someone is clearly milking off their parents and has no desire to get out of the house or to get a job or to go to college or the, and they want to keep living like a child, then I think this idea makes sense because it kind of sends it gives them a little bit of nudge that says, OK, it's time to grow up time to grow up. You're still getting to stay on our health care plan until you're 26 due to Obamacare, but you're not a child anymore and you need to pitch in. But a lot of the young people that I know, they're really struggling to pay their bills, especially if they're expected to pay any portion of their college expenses. But even if they're not, they're trying hard to find money to rent an apartment or maybe even buy a house. And I would... If, I don't think this is something I've discussed with my wife, but I would not want to charge my 19-year-old son 
rent. If he wanted to stay living at home for another couple of years, again, if it gets to the point where he's 35 and still living at home, absolutely, he's going to be paying rent. And we may just kiss, kick him out even if he is paying rent. I So I tend to think that parents should not do this. I think that it is, I don't know. I, 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 look, I get what they're trying to do, and I understand what they're trying to do. But I, I kind of think that, um, I think it's mean a little bit. One person qu- uh, tweeted in response to this, uh, I don't know. My parents did this with me, and it almost ruined our relationship. Made me feel like they care more about money than me, one viewer commented. Now, I don't think that's true of most parents, but I do wonder if uh, that, I mean, what if you're late with the rent? What, what, what are you going to send, you know, you're going to start putting their stuff outside? Are you going to go to collections? It really takes a familial, loving relationship and turns it into a business relationship. Although if enough of you convince me otherwise at 800-848-9222, then maybe we can actually start. Carmine's going to be 19 months old in a month. Maybe we can start charging him rent at 19 months. He's got money, right? Maybe we, he could pitch in. We, it's costing us a lot of money. 800-848-9222. Uh, Matt Blaze, you have a, uh, a thought on this? Yeah, I don't believe in it. I would never charge my kid rent. Uh, if I did, and your parents didn't do this with you, no, right, and mine they, didn't. They did not. The only, the only thing that I would say in doing this is if they were taking that money and actually putting it away for their kids when they actually moved out, they had money for deposit on an apartment or something like that. But I don't think the parents need the money. All of a sudden, when they the, the, the kid goes from 17 to 18. Now, all of a sudden, they need the $200 a month. And I think the guy was kind of being funny because he was like, oh, if she wants to eat, then that's 300 But if she's going to buy all the groceries, then it's 200 I, 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 That's what it sounded like. And maybe they're really doing no, it. No, I, I don't know. I think I got the sense that he was sincere. That, that With he was that gonna, whole thing? Yeah. Uh, uh, $300, that's food inclusive. $200 right. if you're on your own. By the way, Alex Barnard informs me it's not that video alone. The video has 797,000 views. The hashtag parents charging rent, that's the one. That's uh, that's in the billions. Yeah, so it's not say. just that video alone. Thank goodness. Hey, let me tell you what's coming up in a moment. Uh, you're going to hear from Hadley Arcus. He has a very interesting view that I don't know that we've we've talked about on this show before. He's a conservative, but he's not an originalist. He's got a new book out that says conservatives need to go further than originalism into something called natural law. Believe it or not. And the next hour, we're going to get into censorship, uh, vaccines, a bunch of other things with uh, Dr. Naomi Wolf. Uh, She was once suspended from Twitter. I think she's back now. But uh, we'll get into why she was suspended from Twitter and some of her thoughts on what's happening in the world today. Melvin in the Bronx, what do you think about charging your adult child rent? It develops fortitude, the concept of building your family by being a productive member and a contributor. When you go work for somebody else, you are enriching Jones. What's the difficulty in enriching your own family? You're living on the roof. They brought you in this world. They changed your diet, or fed you and everything else. Now you are, as you mature yourself, you accept responsibility and be a productive member of the society that you're in, which is because the most basic organization out here is the family. So what you here for? You want to be a, you want to leech? No, no. You're going to be a contributor, and you help pay these bills. 
because that's the reason why a whole lot of people are broke, because they refuse to contribute and be a productive member of the family unit. Mel- anyway, yeah. I'm a firm believer in home ownership. Mel- Melvin, thank you. you broke. Thank you, Melvin. You know, I see what Melvin is saying, and, and I can't dispute what he's saying. I think he's on the same side as the Archies and the same rationale. I just think that what this actually does by not giving that child the the or young adult, I should say, the means to sock away a little bit of money for savings. I think it actually keeps them in the house potentially longer. And again, not that two or three hundred dollars a month is going to make the difference between them being able to buy a penthouse or not. I just think that um, I don't know. I think you should be trying to help your child, unless they're leeching. If they're leeching, that's a different ballgame. Greg in Arizona, what do you think? Hey, hi, Frank. Uh, I have a stepdaughter that is the textbook definition of failure to launch, and we gave her free rent for years, and uh, it was going okay for a while, but then I realized things were, you know, it was slipping because she was buying frivolous items, um, leading ridiculous lifestyle, and it was on our backs. So what did you do? Oh, I started charging her rent. Oh, and how did it work out for you guys? Well, yes, it's all right. It's a nominal fee, but but it was on three things. Uh, She had to uh, become self-sufficient, finish her education, and stop wasting money. That was like three. That was the three criteria. Well, has it worked? Well, three years of paying rent now, a nominal rent, um, we got two out of three that's kind of like uh, accomplished, but this is 30. Uh, did I mention she's 33? Yeah, no, I, I get it. I, I think, I don't think she's alone for unfortunately. Um, so I think that uh, a lot of people are in the same boat. If people have a uh, child or a stepchild that's in the same boat as you guys were, would you suggest that your strategy might work for them? Well, it, yeah, you'd be saving the you'd be saving the the child uh, from themselves. Uh, yeah, you have to if they can't handle it themselves, you're going to have to do something. Uh, you know, something more from an, an adult perspective. So well, I think you're helping the kid. Well, let me ask you, Greg. Let's take somebody like Kenneth here, who's a young guy. You still live at home, right, Ken? Is that accurate? So he's working hard, working all sorts of crazy hours. He's uh, probably paying on his own to commute uh, to work every day, uh, getting up early, going to bed late. In order to uh, have a job, trying to build a career for himself in the radio business, he's working hard, right? So I'm sure he's trying to say he's – I don't know what we pay him, but I'm sure it's not a king's ransom. He's working hard, saving a pittance of money so that he can try and get his own apartment someday. Should his mother or, or, or father be charging him rent, or is he sufficiently enough already a self-starter that he shouldn't be charged rent? Yeah, I think which that's a, that's a whole different ball game here. I was giving you the failure to launch perspective. This guy's launching; he just needs a little boost from the parents. So, yeah, I would say that, that no, they would be contributing. The ulterior motive would be to ultimately get him out of the house, right? Right, right, Greg. Thank you. Yeah, I think what Greg is saying it kind of brings me to where I was at the beginning of this, which is it depends. It depends. If someone shows no desire to get out of the house, they're like uh, Will Ferrell. And stepbrothers, for instance, yeah, okay, you charge some rent. It makes some sense. It makes some sense. You have to send a message, and you have to change the mentality of the person. But if someone is living at home out of uh, either cost-effectiveness or convenience or whatever, and they're already very motivated, 
I don't think it's necessary, in my opinion, and it's not something that I would do with my kids. We'll continue with your calls on this a bit later. 800-848-9222. Let's talk Supreme Court and natural law with Hadley Arcus. My thanks again to Dr. Sky. I'm already being deluged with people that said this is one of his best appearances ever, so thank you. I'm going to forward some of these on to him. Hadley Arcus in the Supreme Court. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. is the other side of midnight. I am Frank Morano. It seems like just about every issue in the world, whether it's an obvious one like a criminal justice issue, which whether it's a somewhat less obvious one like a political issue, or even issues related to religion, the media, union organizing, cultural issues, education, it seems like at the end of the day, sooner or later, the Supreme Court is either heard on these issues or someone's asking the Supreme Court to hear these issues. And that has led to a whole bunch of debates over the last 50 years especially, but probably over the last 200 years, about the proper role of the Supreme Court in America and the proper role with respect to the Supreme Court and the other branches of government and how that was intended to be framed under our Constitution. Well, someone who has been speaking out about uh, constitutional law issues and teaching people about constitutional law issues for a very long time is Hadley Arcus. He is a professor of jurisprudence and American institutions emeritus at Amherst College. He is a legal scholar par excellence, and he is the author of the new book, Mere Natural Law, Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. Mr. Arcus, it is great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's Frank. Let me begin with uh, your book. Your book is called Mere Natural Law, Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. I've heard a lot of arguments in favor of originalism over the years, and basically it goes something like it's the job of the Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution as written, and it's not the job of the justices or any other federal judges or even state judges to insert their own preferences. You interpret the statute as written, you interpret the Constitution as written. When you talk about going beyond originalism, what is what does that mean exactly? What's the premise of your book, okay. and why did you write it? Well, since let me, you've put something else in that I should point out. I, we want to point out, I want to start this. I'm not making a case for an imperial judiciary. My understanding of the court is, is the understanding held by Lincoln and others about a court that comes under political restraint, where the political branches can push back against the court so that the court does not have the last word on these, contrary to the old line. Now, we can go back to that one later. But the point about mere natural law is really off, to, as an offset to what, we, what has, we've been offered as originalists with a rather truncated originalism, uh, confined to the text, and forgetting the fact that the American founders drew their understanding of the founders 
of the Shad Constitution from principles that were there before the text. Uh, I call this mere natural law because I'm drawing up that book of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, where he simply drew on the conversation of children. What happens? What did conversation of children reveal about arguments about right and wrong, not likes and dislikes, arguments are right and wrong? And they may make no sense unless you assume that there's standards of judgment to tell the difference between right answers and wrong answers. We're drawing here on the teachers of the teaching of that great Scott philosopher, Thomas Reed in the 18th century, teachings on the precincts of common sense. Somebody who was read very closely by founders like James Wilson and John Adams. And the point was, the national law will begin with those precepts of common sense that are not only understood by the ordinary man, but the kinds of things that the ordinary man just has to know in getting on with the business of life. And before he's able to start bantering about the theories. So the line was before the average man would start bantering with a philosopher like David Hume about the meaning of causation, he knew his own active powers to cause his own acts to happen. Now, the American founders began there, and they knew those principles were there before the Constitution. They knew they would be there even if there were no Constitution. Just the way that John Quincy Adams said that right to petition the government is simply implicit in a free society. It would be there even if it hadn't been mentioned in the First Amendment. It would be there even if there were no First Amendment. It would be there even if there were no Constitution. So my friends were the rich. I, I've been a teacher of the American founding. I've made a career of reading closely and expounding the writings of people like James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton, John Marshall. But what the originalists are giving us is a crabbed version of the founding in which they are confined to the text, and they quite miss the fact that the American founders were persistently moving outside the text of the Constitution in order to explain the grounds of their judgments. Well, for example, the proposition, the, the anchoring principle of, of the first law of all practical legal and moral judgment, that makes no sense to cast moral judgments or plays or blame on people for acts they were powerless to affect. We don't hold people blameworthy for acts they were powerless to affect. That simple principle is a source of, of strands that run through the Constitution, but it's not in the text of the Constitution. Yet some of our friends think that if a judge leaves the text of the Constitution, that he's simply being indulging in personal, personal preferences. No, if a judge goes outside the Constitution and says something like, anyone accused of a crime should have access to the witness against him for the sake of rebutting him, he's not appealing to his merely personal views. Nazi is merely personal views by saying, well, it doesn't say in the Constitution about presumed innocent until give, proven guilty. People don't realize that. That's not in the Constitution. Yet why do people have such confidence that that principle is an integral part of our constitutional life? So I'm trying to get away from this kind of – this crabbed originalism was done in response to what they thought were judges running amok, mm. inventing – new rights in the, under the Constitution. So abortion was nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. Therefore, federal judge should have no rights to proclaim there. But marriage wasn't, wasn't mentioned in the Constitution. When the court struck down those laws that barred marriage across racial lines in 1967, the advice was not that these people ran off inventing new rights under the text. It's that they, they 
they invented false rights, specious rights. And the counter to that is not to say, oh, it's not in the text. The counter to that is to show them why those, that reasoning was specious and indefensible. So before we get into some of the the aspects of natural law that you feel were implicit in the framers putting together the Constitution and that the role of the court would be um, on very sound ground, keeping in mind, let's talk about um, what originalism is. If we're going to keep referring to originalism. Well, I, just, I, I just mentioned it. It's a, it. You said it precisely. First, we, and I agree with this. We try to understand the Constitution as the structure that was laid out for us. And I study, we studied the American founders, the writings of, of Hamilton, Madison, Marshall, Wilson, because these are the people who made it. They made this, this frame of government, and they gave us the most luminous account of what it means. So, of course, we studied them. And, yes, we want to try to understand the Constitution as those founders understood them. But they don't give us the answer to everything. And those same founders felt the need to move outside the text on critical points to get to reach anchoring propositions that were absolutely necessary to explaining their judgments. So again, it's not an argument. It's not an argument over whether it's important to understand the founding as the founders made it and the structure they put in place. Yeah, I, I, I do want to know such things as whether a state can make its territory available as a military naval base for another country. This is a, a structural matter. We're usually not litigating over things like this. And Obamacare suffered a real jolt in 2010 on the way to passage because the Constitution, for the 56th time through peace and war, served up a midterm election. And people don't seem to realize, God, it was the Constitution doing that. You don't realize it because we're not litigating over this matters of structure. So we can defend that. We explain what really, what the real purpose was that of, of not, not allowing a state to make its territory available for foreign military power, quite consistent with the whole structure of the Constitution, understanding it. Okay, but uh, we're not litigating over these things. We're litigating over things that bring us into these moral arguments as to whether the Constitution is somehow contains a, a, a principle of running against capital punishment or whether it actually licenses the right of a woman to destroy an unborn child, something utterly new, uh, just condemned in our laws right until 1973. That's the kind of arguments we're having. And the other side said, well, they, the, the wrong was you invented a new right. It's not that they simply invented something not in the text. The federal government had ample reason to deal with abortion before Roe versus Wade. It had to deal with abortion in military outposts abroad, in, in diplomatic outposts, abortion in the territories, abortion in the District of Columbia, naturalization in abortion. There's many reasons why abortion could be the legitimate concern of the federal government. What was at issue here was the creation of a right that could not really be explained and justified. That was the heart of the problem, not whether a right to abortion was or was not mentioned in the text of the Constitution. And that's where the arguments that's where the arguments tend to focus, even within the circle, the family of conservatives. All right. We're talking with uh, Hadley Arcus, whose book is Mere Natural Law. No, no, yeah. Yeah. Originalism okay. and the anchoring truths of the Constitution. So you you've alluded to a couple of the 
pre-constitutional assumed natural rights that are part of natural law. Give me a few others. How, how about how about the, how about the Second Amendment? Okay, on, on arms, mm-hmm. on the right to bear arms. Now, I was talking with my my dear friend Justice Scalia, and I said, when you talked about the right to bear arms, you were invoking the right of somebody to engage in self-defense, right? Right. I assumed you meant the right of an innocent person to fend off an unjustified assault, right? Right. And I said, well, those words aren't in the Second Amendment. And your 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 liberal judges don't find them there. So what makes that true? Now, do you say that many people at the time proclaimed the right to self-defense, and many of those people who voted for the Second Amendment actually read them? In that case, you're just returning the Constitution into legislative history. What are they? How much do they know? What? But you, what's the wrong question? It's the answer to the wrong question. The real question is: Is there in fact a deeper principle that establishes the right of an innocent person to have access to a lethal weapon when necessary to protect his life. And once you have that, it explains the Second Amendment, but that principle is nowhere contained in the logic of the Second Amendment, in the text of the Second Amendment. In other words, to understand the Second Amendment, you have to trace it back to what the real principle was. The other side wants to say, no, there's no right to... There's no right to uh, with use guns, it's all a matter of of, of uh, a militia. Simply the right to state to form militia. No recognition that there was a right here uh, of a of a uh, an innocent person to have access to a lethal weapon when necessary to defend his life. That principle, as the that principle is true, even if it's not in the Second Amendment. It's true. It'd be true even if there were not constitution, no constitution. We'd have to be, and we were just addressing this whole question anew. But that's exactly exact the nature of the problem, that persistently even the conservative judges were, um, were have to uh, face this kind of thing. And uh, so the question is not whether it's, 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 you have to move outside the text. You're going to have to move the text. So the question is, are you going to do it well? Are you going to do it badly? Now, now Scalia knew that Lyman Trumbull, who managed the 14th Amendment, assured his colleagues at the time, up and down, that nothing in that 14th Amendment was going to threaten those laws in Illinois as well as Virginia that barred marriage across racial lines. In which case I told him, well, that was, we, that's clear. That was the original understanding. And if Trumbull could not give that assurance, that 14th Amendment had no way of passing because the, the sentiment against interracial marriage was just so dominant, north as well as south. Now, if so the question was, well, did you, was, it, was the Constitution wrong, the court wrong, in taking that case on interracial marriage? But it was quite clear, utterly clear, what the understanding was of the men who framed and ratified that amendment. In order to explain that point, you're going to have to go beyond the text and behind, beyond the understanding of those men who framed it and ratified it. And you can only do that by trying to reach the real principle that explains to us the, what is wrong in racial discrimination in making moral inferences about people as though race determined their moral character. I think you might have some folks, maybe on the left and the right, who say that once you open the door to 
considering things that aren't in the text of the Constitution or in the text of a statute that might be being challenged, for instance, that that opens the door to all sorts of other things, what some people might refer to as the invention of rights and things of that nature. Why do you hey, think... What's, what's, what's the revelation? People disagree over, over moral arguments? Is there anything new about that? When we have those disagreements, what do we do? We say... We are so divided, we just stop our, We stop trying to find the right answer, or do we continue the conversation? Let's take your position, Frank. It's, we'll go beyond the text. All right, what if somebody gives me that first principle? We don't hold people blameworthy or responsible for acts they were powerless to affect. Where is that in the Constitution? Are we doing something dangerous when we appeal to it? How about innocent, when, innocent, innocent until proven guilty? Are you afraid that anybody reads the text of the Constitution they're going to find that principle of innocence. Is there something dangerous in finding that principle of innocence to proven guilty? See, what is the real problem here? Unless you think there are absolutely no standards to guide you, you think that once you leave the text, you have no rational resources for gauging the difference between better and worse arguments. I mean, that's utterly impossible for grown-ups, I think. The well does doesn't the Sixth Amendment to some to some extent uh, guarantee a presumption of innocence? No, it doesn't say that. The uh, well, I, I guess I guess I guess you're right. I will certainly defer you to uh, your your reading of the Sixth not Amendment. Of, not of my text, uh, <laughs> Nino, Nino Scalia says it may be implicit. It may be what they're assuming, but it's not there. Scalia says it's a bedrock principle of the First Amendment. You can't have restraints on the content of speech. Look, he's an old friend. That bedrock principle is nowhere found in my text of the First Amendment. Is there, so how does he claim to know it? Is there a finite list of natural rights that you would consider to be part of natural law that it's fair for uh, justices or judges to consider? Well, it doesn't be finite because sometimes you discover implications of your own principle that you've for you know, not noticed, right? But there are these anchoring truths that uh, that get like you don't hold people blame for acts they're powerless to affect. If Jones were in intensive surgery, following uh, following intensive care, following surgery, he could not have committed that burglary. If Jones was not in control of himself, he's under hypnosis. He couldn't be held mm-hmm. responsible. The same. Principle comes into play for things like racial uh, dis- discrimination. Um, ordinary people, tell the ask the ordinary man. If I told you that somebody here's a critical principle, uh, Lincoln once said in this debate with Douglas. Douglas said, "Look, some places they have laws on uh, oysters in Maine, laws on cranberries, and some places you slave labor." Lincoln said, "No, those things are not on the same plane. Oysters." And cranberries are morally indifferent. What do we mean by that? If you ask the man on the street, Frank, if I tell you that someone is short and tall, that he stutters, that he has diabetes, can you make any inferences to whether you're dealing with a good or bad man? The average man, I said, well, no, at least people can be as good or as bad as anyone else, right? Well, if, if that's the case, you find later a case that came up in Long Island that a child is afflicted with spina bifida and Down syndrome. And the parents are willing to remove medical treatment for the child on the ground that a life afflicted with bifida is a life not worth living. As Judge uh, Winter 
I'm going to cart below. If you withdraw medical care because the child was the wrong race, that's not a medical judgment. And if you're withdrawing judgment or care because you think a child afflicted with spina bifida, a Down syndrome, can't leave a life of moral purpose, even in his diminished state, that is not a medical judgment. Well, that is the way these things play out. Or just take something as simple. You know, um, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And Thomas Reed said, you might as well have said, you're sleeping, therefore you am. I'm doing nothing there. Your identity, your own personal existence has never been a subject of doubt with you. As an old line went, an amnesic may doubt who he is. He doubt, doesn't doubt that he is. So Brown tells us now, I'm not actually the same person you arrested for embezzlement last Friday. I've been completely changed. I'm not the same person. We say, no, regrettably, Brown. It's your identity. You have not lost that identity through all these successive stages. There's so, there, there are so many the things are so elementary, Frank, that we're not even aware they're using them. Take, a, take just a, an ordinary example. I was a couple of years ago in my wonderful apartment building in Washington. We were put out on the grounds because the fighting the fire department was fighting a fire. Let me tell you, Frank, it was vexing. Nobody wanted to be out there for two or three hours with no liberty to enter our own apartment. Sure. Our liberty was being restricted. But no, I swear to you, Frank, nobody out there thought our rights were being violated. Mm. Why is that? Because they framed it in a common sense way. Yes, our feelings being restricted, but for reasons that are justified, because the reasons were directed to our, to our protection and our lives. I see a youngster poised on Connecticut Avenue, ready to go on the subway with a bicycle. And I say, my gosh, can you do that? He says, yes, but not during rush hour. <laughs> the, 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 the kid understands and it's certainly reasonable not to go taking up space like his liberty is being restricted but he understands it's justified my point Frank is that these are matters of common sense and the way ordinary people frame a moral questions every day yes it's restricted but it was rightful it was, rightful. It was justified but there is nothing esoteric about this there's nothing uh uh, 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 there's nothing just too complicated about it. Ordinary people do it every day. And part of the pitch in the book is that you have to go beyond. Look, let's take the matter of uh, the transgender case. Andrew Stevens says he re earnestly believes that he has turned into a woman. And therefore, the holy is uh, all the people around him who refuse to respect that judgment are now violating, engaged in sexual discrimination. They could be put in legal peril. Their employers could be put in legal peril for contributing to a hostile work environment. And the, the conservatives think, well, what did, what did sexual discrimination mean in the statute of 1964? And they try to interpret it. And they think, well, it possibly could have meant this. Well, look, you have to ask, what kind of, how, much, how many tanks spent in absorbing theories of statutory construction that would lead you to a judgment that every ordinary man would see as imbecilic. Any ordinary man could tell that Andrew Stevens has not turned into a woman. He knows that there are such, there's an objective difference between males and females. There has to be, 
because we wouldn't have human beings if we didn't have, quote, males and females. Mm-hmm. That, is the, that is the objective meaning of sex. So what you find that what passed itself as originalism or conservative jurisprudence, that we are confined entirely to construing the text, but we may not make an appeal to that objective, inescapable truth, say, on sex that stands outside the Constitution, which, of course, all of the founders understood at once. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Hadley Arcus. His book is Mere Natural Law, Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. We're almost out of time, but there's two final areas that I want to get into with you, and I hope you'll come back in the future because it's a a thought-provoking discussion that has caused me to, just talking with you, uh, think of a whole bunch of new questions. But I, I can see different people making different moral judgments, having different values. Some people may have have uh, different, uh, very strong feelings about what a natural right is or what natural law is and might be even able to cite different historical precedent to that effect. Some would say maybe that's why there should be a great deal of deference to both the democratically elected representatives of the people, since they speak directly for the people that are being governed now, and or to juries who might be able to, through guilt or innocence or through monetary damages, consider all of the factors which might be some degree of common sense that you're alluding to here. What do you think about both of those principles, deference to the democratically elected representatives and deference to juries? Okay, from a couple of different angles. Frank, Frank what I'm putting forth, the kind of judges, I'm, this is what I'm arguing for, of judges who think in terms of categorical or necessary truths. That judge tells you that we don't know what the, what the right price of nature is for a pair of pants or for rent controls. That judge will not tell you what the right residence requirement is before a state has to start making subsidized higher education available to its residents and new residents. That is the kind of decision that can only be made by somebody who is sensitive to the means and the sentiments, the generosity of the local. That, that, the, the, the standards for making those judgments can't be find, found anywhere in the toolkit of judges. But remember, the classic position is you have a presumptive claim to all dimensions of your living, not simply those mentioned in the Bill of Rights. You're right to make a living. You're right to make a living Chinese shoes, braiding hair. But what comes along with this is that every law imposes a restriction on personal freedom. And so it's everything a legislature, the legislatures do these things, they may have to be aware that the law has to carry a burden of justification in explaining why it's justified in barring the freedom of people to make their livings as tattoo parlors or make their livings, livings uh, uh, braiding hair. Or in the case of uh, Oklahoma, that classic case of Skinner versus Oklahoma, that this legislation decides that it knows what forms of criminality are genetically transmissible, and they decided that chicken thieving is one of those. Well, we'll sterilize this chicken thiever now. We may not block him from stealing chickens again, but we won't. But he won't be perpetuating his kind. Well, of course, it's quite legitimate for the court to say, "Look, you're, you're doing something serious to somebody." Not only restricting his freedom, restricting his freedom to engage in procreation later, but you, shouldn't you be carrying a heavier burden of proof to tell us how you know that this kind of crime is genetically transmissible before you do this to somebody? So, frankly, I'm telling you, yes, I, 
I'm a believer in, in there's a strong reason to do things in legislatures because legislatures reflect a wide range of opinion in the, in the community. It tells us where one interest is colliding with another and tells people, look, you're going to have to make a strong case to show why this policy of yours should be accepted by people who have interests other than your own. That's a fine discipline. It should be. But it doesn't remove the critical moral discipline that must ever affect the making of laws by legislatures, which is, are we indeed justified in saying that a child before it's viable in the womb is ceases, it's no longer, it's not a human being yet? Where do we get that? Where, where do we get that premise? Where do we get that evidence standing mm-hmm. against the evidence of embryology? Why is it somehow wrong to bring in the powerful evidence of embryology that tells us that that offspring of the womb has never been anything other than human from its first, first moments, and it's never been really a part of the mother? It may be nine months in the womb. It may be six months, but it's not a different being. It's the same being in the process of growth. Look, these are all legitimate things, right, to bring into play. Whether you're asking a legislature to justify itself, or you're asking judges to justify themselves, that is supposed to be the mm. discipline of judgment in all these domains, whether we're dealing with legislatures or with judges. So the argument for natural law is simply again that yeah, we 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 take seriously the notion that there are standards there. Yeah, people can always be involved in a moral argument. They, they, they don't think the black. They don't think the. 19th century, saying, I don't well, they're not sure black people were the human. They're saying somewhere between the animals and, and the real human beings. Because human beings, we look more like us, these blonde, white characters. Well, uh, it's quite legitimate to rate. We're having a moral argument. Uh, Mr. Arcus, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time this morning, and I'm wishing you the best of luck with the book. If people are interested in learning more, about what we've been touching upon. They could check out the book, Mere Natural Law. It's available on Amazon and on a lot of places where books are sold. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, thanks, Frank. Good luck with your program. Thank you. If you want to be heard and comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Tonight, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morato. Very interesting. Uh, you know, I've told you before, we live with three cats. One is diabetic. One has cancer, lymphoma, unfortunately. And one, as far as we know, is pretty much perfectly fine. Ironically, the one that's perfectly fine is the one of the three that I absolutely like the least. 
So yesterday, my wife took our cat, Beth Sheba, who's pretty much everyone's favorite. She's the nicest cat. If you ever come over to our house, she's the only one that you'll meet because uh, Melchizedek will try to scratch you. Prissy will run away from you. Beth Sheba will rub right up against you and let anybody pet her. And uh, she is unfortunately suffering from lymphoma. So we've been giving her this oral chemotherapy drug three times per week. And last time she went to the oncologist, the cat oncologist, she was doing pretty well. So she was due yesterday for an appointment. My wife takes her all the way out, about 45 minutes to an hour, to uh, Piscataway. It's that away. And uh, my wife came home, and I could tell she was already a little frustrated. She had she was frustrated from the visit. She had to leave work early in order to go. She was frustrated that Carmine was getting a little a little antsy, and she was I think frustrated that it took so long. So she's briefing me on everything that occurred, and unfortunately, Beth Sheba lost a pound, which may not sound like a lot for a human, but for a cat, that's a big deal to lose a a pound, and they were going over why, so that's not a good sign for her lymphoma. So they were going over why this might happen for a cat suffering from lymphoma that's on chemotherapy, who heretofore has been responding pretty well. And ultimately, they didn't really come up with an answer, but the cat oncologist said something, and I never, never heard about this before, not that I'm an expert in veterinary medicine, but what the cat oncologist said, was that because the chemotherapy pill that Beth Sheba is taking is a generic drug, it's made in a compound or something, and that maybe if she takes the brand name drug, maybe she will respond a little bit better. And my wife said, well, why? Why would why would that make a difference? Doesn't it do the same thing? Isn't the brand name just a... Isn't that essentially the same thing that she's taking? And the the oncologist told her, well, not really. They said, according to her, the brand name drug is a lot more higher end ingredients. How much do you think this brand name cat chemotherapy drug is? It is $50 a pill, $50 a pill. So that she takes this pill three times a week. So that means essentially $600 in chemotherapy a month. Now, my wife would be homeless if it meant making one of her cats healthy. So it's not the price, especially we get a portion of her costs covered through pet insurance. But it's the price compared to what we're getting. Or is this actually going to make her better? We don't know. I'm curious if anyone else has had an experience like that, please email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. However, um, then they said maybe it has something to do with the food. And the, the oncologist actually mentioned, because the drugs are cheaper in Canada, because they have socialized medicine up there, They the, the cat oncologist says maybe you can buy the drugs from British Columbia, which I'm not even sure that's legal. Well, that's what the cat oncologist suggested. Buying Canadian cat drugs. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, you remember those old commercials years ago, What Would You Do for a Klondike Bar? And they were very clever, very clever marketing campaign and kind of got the message across. And the way that the jingle went, What Would You Do for a Klondike Bar? It was very catchy, so much so that I haven't seen one of these commercials in many years, and it stayed with me all this time. Well, let me ask you a serious question. What would you do for a free television set? Nice television set, brand new television set. I am actually in the market for a new television set because mine's kind of old. I mean, not old. I mean, it's eight, nine years old, which years ago you'd keep a television set for 15, 20 years, and that would not be unusual. Now our television set's a little small for the wall space that it sits on. We also have a lot of friends over a lot of the time for movies or for sporting events, whatever the case may be, and it does feel as if it's a little small, but that's okay. Telly, T-E-L-L-Y. Why? Because we can tell. Telly, a startup led by a co-founder of Pluto TV. Pluto TV is sort of a uh, a basket of streaming networks, if you're not familiar with it. It's, it's kind of neat. But Telly um, is taking a novel tack in promoting its dual-screen smart TV sets. And a dual-screen smart TV set, apparently, from what I could tell, is exactly what it sounds like. If you're having difficulty picturing what a dual-TV smart TV set would look like, I just linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Essentially, there's two screens, one right on top of the other. And the bottom screen, the, the top screen will have the picture. The bottom screen will have other information, other text, and advertisements so it one the bottom screen's pretty small so they're taking a very novel approach in promoting this after emerging from a 24-month stealth period the company says it will offer its first half a million mass-produced models of this television set for free for free to consumers when they start shipping this summer. Ilya Posen, founder and CEO of Telly, told Deadline that the 55-inch sets, that's a nice size TV, I think. Matt Blaze, what would you say these TV sets on the wall here are? I think they're 32. 32. Yeah. Okay, and they're not tiny. So a 55-inch no, set. Well, no, I'm saying the one in the studio where you are is 32. No, no, these over there. The ones out there. Those are probably 55, maybe. Okay, see, that's what I figured. Yeah, okay. they're like 55. So that's a nice size television set, a 55-inch television set. And they are high-end. They have 4K HDR picture quality and a built-in premium sound bar. If you were to buy this and not get it for free, it would retail for more than $1,000. So it is bringing it to market, the first dual-screen smart TV. As I indicated, and as you'll see and if you go to my Facebook page, below the main panel, a smaller screen is a conduit for sports scores, news, weather, display ads, and other supplemental information. You know, for instance, we have one of the news channels on now, and what's so annoying is they have this sort of ticker tape of constant news all the time. That would be on the lower screen under these new TVs. The bottom screen can also go dark, though, when a movie's playing on a bigger screen. 
the free giveaway, there's always a catch, right? The free giveaway is an effort to upend the prevailing business model in streaming and have advertising more completely fund the device itself. The head, of the head Posen, said TVs have become a commodity. When a category becomes a commodity, what happens? It's a race to the bottom on price. There's very little margin to be made on the hardware. Over time, he went on, smart TVs became drastically underpowered. They're the largest screen in our home, but they are as dumb as an ATM machine. That's his quote, not mine, because I've been trying to reduce my use of the term ATM machine. Instead of setting out to make a bargain-priced TV, Telly has targeted the higher end of the market. After the rollout of the 55-inch set, larger sizes are expected to follow. Investors in Telly, which launched two years ago as a company, include some very reputable people, Lightshed Partners and VaynerMedia. VaynerMedia, I think, is Gary Vaynerchuk's company. And Ryan Reynolds-backed connected TV ad firm MNTN. And Ryan Reynolds, he's just had hit after hit, not just on the screen, but in sports and technology and advertising. And they formed a partnership with the company. And they've not said exactly how much they've raised, but they say that Telly's post-raise valuation will be in the nine-figure range. So the hope is to emulate the trajectory of Pluto. And so they're going to give you a free television set in exchange for basically just watching the ads. They're going to give you a free television set in order to collect your data. And I am not a, I don't know, I'm not a big lover of the fact that everyone is trying to collect our data all the time. But I have to admit, at the prospect of a free television and maybe a new business model for the television industry, there is something I find appealing about this. Um, Bloomberg Radio used to do this. They would send everybody free Bloomberg radios. All you'd have to do is uh, is call and request them. And it was just a radio that got one channel, Bloomberg Radio. And I think this is kind of similar. Instead of Bloomberg Radio, it's Tele-TV. So you're going to have constant advertisements and constant data collection a, on that bottom screen. A never-ending ad stream will play on the lower smart screen. A nine-inch ad on that can also show you all this other stuff, weather, stocks, other stuff. And the main screen might also display ads when you're not using it. You'll also have to answer some demographic and psychographic questions when you sign up to make the ads more targeted. So if Toyota wants to run an ad to people that currently own a Honda whose lease expires within the next 12 months, they pick and choose those individual TVs. You see, they better let the advertisers target you. So you get a free TV and telly gets to sell your information to advertisers. So if you're okay with that, you can reserve a TV right now for free on telly's website. They're expected to ship out this summer. I haven't discussed this with my wife yet, but I'm not sure if I'm okay with this. I would like the free thousand dollar TV, but I don't necessarily want to hand over all that much more data. But then on the other hand, I feel like they're getting a lot of my data anyway. What do you think? Are you signing up for this free uh, free television set 
in exchange for ads and data? 800-848-9222. Marketers say it was only a matter of time before a free TV emerged since prices for devices like Roku and other smart television sets have been coming down as ad sales have grown. Ad spending for Internet-connected TVs rose from about $6 billion in 2019 to more than $21 billion in 2022, which is pretty substantial. Is this the future? In the future, will all of your television sets be free if you're willing to watch some ads? 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, what about you? you signing up for the free TV? No, I'm looking at a picture of it. And first of all, you have to put it on the wall because there's the big screen, regular-sized TV, say 55-inch. Then it looks like it's connected by some sort of... I don't. It looks like chicken wire or like some sort of film... That's connected to the. Well, it's smaller, not chicken wire. Not chicken wire, but it looks sort of like a like a printer ribbon or something that it's connected to this little screen that's the same width as the TV, but maybe like I don't know, ten inches high. Would you say? It looks that way. About right. that. With that has stats on it and a little ad. There's. I'm looking at a picture with a Pizza Hut ad. I wouldn't want that all the time, and you have to put it on the wall. There's, you cannot put this on a stand. Well, um, see, I already have the TV on the wall, so maybe right. it would not be that big of an issue for me. Do but you have the space for it? And, do you, and would you want it? Do you want to watch ads all the time? I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to watch the ads. But I'm trying to think if I can deal with the ads in exchange for the free television set. <laughs> you just the, want a free TV. I do. I do want the free television set. And it's set. a 55 inch? Yes. It's a nice looking TV. It's not 4K. Bad, but, I mean, you could get. TVs don't cost that much. I know. Well, okay, fine. All right, but that's why I'm. I'm I, so, um, what about you, Kenneth? Did you look at this? What is, what is your view? Yeah, I'm looking at it. I, I don't know. I kind of agree. It doesn't really look the most appealing, and I feel like companies can f- get your data anyway. So I, I feel like if that's what you're worried about, I, I would. If you want the TV, I would get it. I wouldn't worry okay. about them stealing your. All data right. So I do feel a little or... bit better after talking to Kenneth about that. That's the way I feel. I feel like so much of my data is up there, but I don't know. Do I want to help them more, get more of my data? I don't know that I do. 800-848-9222. Is there a, is there a camera on the top of the TV? I don't – not that I've seen in any of the articles that I've read. Okay, because I'm just looking at a picture of it, and it looks like there's a little rectangular something on the top of the screen. Yeah, I do that, see that. That could be maybe a camera. Yeah, I'd be very surprised. Know. Well, it's All a right. smart TV. I mean, maybe you could do, like, FaceTime kind of app or something. It's possible. I, it's, it is possible. Tell me if you would get one of these. Are you going to sign up in exchange for watching some ads and letting them uh, ans- ask you some demographic questions? 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up in a couple of minutes. Dr. Naomi Wolf is going to be here. They may throw me off the air after uh, after this one because... Naomi Wolf has gone really from being a feminist icon to being one of the most controversial people in the entire world. So we're going to talk censorship. We're going to talk about uh, I'll ask her about her time with Bill Clinton, Al Gore. I'll ask her about vaccines, a bunch of other things, uh, maybe even some Tucker Carlson. And uh, we'll we'll run the gamut of subjects to go over with her. What about you? Would you get one of these tele free television sets? Chris is in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Orwellian capitalism. 
that's what this is. Yeah. Not sure for somebody that, it, I don't know, if I ever wanted to get back into politics, might not be the smartest thing to do. But I guess if you're somebody that doesn't, has no concern about somebody knowing, you know, what you do with, I guess, your free time on the internet and other things of that nature, then go for it, right? Well, what do you mean your free time on the internet? Well, when they're getting all your data, um, it, what exactly can you define what it is that they're essentially eavesdropping on in exchange well, for the Well, you television? have to answer all these questions. You know, are you uh, do you own a Honda? Uh, are you um, how your age? Your probably your income level. I don't know, uh, but it the it's it the wh- what they're going to do is use your personalized individual profile to sell ads. They're going to say, hey, uh, Toyota, if you want to reach people whose car lease is expiring in 10 months, th- this is who you should pay, and we can target your ads so that they only reach certain people. Or someone like you, for instance, who's been a politician, if you want to target only conservative Democrats that live in New York State, you would be able to run ads uh, solely to conservative Democrats. Right now, my television set doesn't know if I'm a Democrat or a Republican. So if, if Democrats or Republicans want to reach me, they've all got to advertise on my television set. This sort of makes the ads a bit more more targeted. So they're not tracking your Internet usage per se, and they, but they would be tracking your television watching habits, obviously. Yeah, well, when you say Internet usage, I guess it, it's, it's Internet-based because it's a smart TV. But, uh, I, I mean, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, because they'd probably link up with your, with your Internet provider, so they would have that information implicitly without asking you for it. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so, Chris. I really I couldn't say. Jay in Ohio, did you sign up for one of these TVs? Uh, no, I did not. We're we're we're, we're kind of behind you guys. We're twenty years behind you guys. But uh, as a state like stuff, uh, just technology. I remember in my youth we had two TVs. Uh, one had picture but no sound, and the other one had the sound but no picture. Excellent. That was our high tech TVs in the day. But uh, All right, they so- know everything about us, uh, and, and I think. Uh, it's interesting. It's interesting technology. So would you sign up for one of these free television sets? I'm an old geezer. They they probably wouldn't be care about what I what I what I want to know. No, well, but they're not saying that it's only for young people. It's for anyone that wants one. I probably would. It's interesting. All right. Well, thank you for that very thoughtful contribution, Jay. All right. Dr. Naomi Wolf is here. Uh, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment if you want to uh, weigh in on this or anything else we've covered. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One thing that really frustrates me when it's being done by private media outlets, when it's being done by the government, when it's being done by big tech companies, whether it's being done by uh, politicians or schools, one of the things that really uh, frustrates me is censorship. 
I am all for debating everyone's ideas about everything, getting those ideas out there into the public square. And if they're a little wacky, maybe you have someone else explain why those ideas might be a little wacky. Unfortunately, we have seen in this country a rise of a private sector censorship, which has determined certain people's views. Forget about being wrong, not even worthy of being heard. And it's pretty frustrating. My guest is somebody that has been fighting back against censorship in all its forms for a long time. She's gone from being probably the most famous feminist icon in the country to being one of the most controversial academics in the whole country. I am very, very pleased uh, to welcome Dr. Naomi Wolf, the author of the new book, The Bodies of Others, The New Authoritarians, COVID-19 and the War Against the Human. In addition to her many other claims to fame, she's also the co-founder and CEO of DailyClout.io, which is a, a, a successful civic tech company. Dr. Wolf, it's great to have you on the radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Wolf, for people that don't know your history, I don't know where to begin. You have been educated at some of the finest institutions in the world. You have written many best-selling books on a wide variety of subjects. You've always been outspoken. You've already always been an activist. One of the ways that you first came on my radar screen is when you were an advisor to President Clinton back in his 1996 re-election. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. That's where they first sort of you became a household name in a lot of people's mind. You apparently met with President Clinton quite often during that 1996 reelection campaign. Most of us will never get to work that closely with the sitting president. I'm wondering if you could share what that experience was like. What was Bill Clinton like in private to deal with on a personal level? Well, I should um, and please call me Naomi. I should, I guess, gently uh, correct the record. I actually um, was an advisor to his campaign, not to him personally. So I really only met him once or twice and never, you know, never in private. Um, And so uh, it was uh, Vice President Gore with whom I had a a working relationship that included um, a lot of direct consultation. You, I remember you were the one in that 2000 campaign that they pinned the whole alpha male uh, description on. Of were was that actually your your suggestion of how Al Gore should model himself as a as an alpha male, or was that sort of just a media creation? Well, yeah, it's a complete distortion. Um, the you know as was the you know, Earth Tones meme also, uh, basically there was a memo that I wrote to him that said um, people perceive you as the vice president because he was the vice president, so he needs to do things in his campaign that position him and habituate people to seeing him as um, the leader instead of the supporting role of the vice president. That's literally the memo. It's hardly, you know, it's hardly controversial at all. And it got distorted um, in the way that you described. The um, thing that I guess you're most talked about and sometimes praised, sometimes criticized, 
these days for has been your views on the government's handling of COVID and the lockdowns and everything related to uh, certain aspects of government overreach when it comes to uh, when it comes to COVID. Let's talk about the lockdowns first, because I think wherever people fall, they recognize how damaging the lockdowns were to the entire country, economically, culturally, spiritually, uh, in terms of drug use, but especially to children. Based on your research and what you've seen, how damaging were the COVID lockdowns to the country? Well, that's a great question. I guess the first thing I would say is um, the, the question of how damaging they were to me is very important, but it's secondary to the fact that they were illegal and that we have a constitution, and the constitution has a First Amendment that guarantees freedom of assembly. So um, that's the most important thing, because when your your government restricts your movement, you're already living in a police state. A coup has already taken place. So that's the thing I'd really like people to, to process. Um, I wrote a book in 2012 called The End of America, uh, and I looked at how um, tyrants, whether on the left or on the right, seek to close open societies and crush democracies. And they always do the same, take the t- same 10 steps. So step 10 is martial law or emergency law. And so right away, by March of 2020, we went right to step 10. Um, and that is a closed society. And I also looked back in history, and I wrote about this in my book about the lockdowns um, called The Bodies of Others. And the only like Western free societies have never restricted the movement of citizens. Uh, it's, it's places like the Warsaw Ghetto in the West that have restricted the movements of citizens. North Korea restricts citizens' movements. Um, when citizens in the United States have had their movements restricted, it's been by Jim Crow laws or Native Americans on a reservation. In other words, um, or you know, Jews in Vichy France had their movements restricted. People have their movements restricted prior to the theft of all their assets or prior to being murdered, really, historically. So it's not, you know, it's not something that has ever been part of um, the Western view of what a a free democracy does to citizens, and it's also unlawful. So, you know, that's number one. And number two, of course— you know, when you lock people in their homes, as China does with its citizens, um, I mean, we're going to look back on this and our heads will explode, you know, that we, we went along with this. Um, of course, you know, small businesses are going to die. Target is allowed to stay open. Big box stores stay open. They crush their competition. Millions are transferred, billions, from the middle classes and working classes to a handful of giant corporations. Um, of course, if you lock children in at home and don't let them have playdates or go to school. They'll be suicidal and depressed and anxious. I know two families who have young adults or teenagers who have agoraphobia so bad they can't go out anymore um, because the message to our, our youth was the world will kill you or you'll kill grandma if you go outside or if you have a play date. Um, of course, if you um, you know close churches and synagogues, Elderly people will be depressed and die alone. You know, of course, if you don't let loved ones visit their elders in hospitals, um, you know, you'll have massive death rates in hospitals because social contact 
boosts people's immunities and keeps them alive. And, you know, the, not to mention the, the physical harm. Like, I'm not a medical doctor, but I have, as you mentioned, had a very privileged education. And I'm an English major, and I read 400 years of um, novels and memoirs. Well, we've had waves of infectious diseases in Britain and America for the last 400 years, much more serious than this, from cholera and typhus and smallpox to yellow fever in Philadelphia in the 18th century to you know tuberculosis, on and on and on. And never, ever, ever, like since the Crimean War, we've known that if there's an infectious disease and you don't have a cure for it, you know, you open the windows, you get people outside, you give them, you know, vitamin D, you give them good nutrition. You don't pack people into uh, multi-generational households and, you know, put crime scene tape on playgrounds and, and hiking trails. Um, so we were told to do things that are the opposite of, of what people have understood for 150 years that you need to do to keep populations healthy when there's an infectious disease around without a cure. The um, so much what you say there, I I find so interesting, and I want to uh, follow up on as much of it as as we can. One of the things that's been reported is that uh, if Ron DeSantis moves forward with his presidential campaign, as appears likely, that he's going to be making the lockdowns one of the key points of difference between he and President Trump, and not only Trump allowing these lockdowns to go forward, but uh, Trump. Uh, having folks like uh, Anthony Fauci remain in the positions that they were in. You think that's a fair criticism from uh, DeSantis towards Trump? I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand what the criticism was. We, it, the, the Trump allowing the lockdowns in 2020 oh. and maintaining Dr. Fauci's position. Well, allowing the lockdowns. I mean, what, as I recall, and, you know, I didn't vote for President Trump in retrospect, the people I voted for are catastrophic traitors. But um, as I recall, what President Trump said was, again, accurate in terms of our system of government. He said it's up to the states. And some states locked down and other states like Dakota did, you know, briefly, uh, not at all. And states like Florida did briefly, and then they stopped. So my memory is that President Trump did not have a federal lockdown. Um, are we remembering differently? Well, uh, no. I mean, well, so Trump uh, came up with this plan to allow the states to reopen at their own pace. Right. Uh, so and I think that, uh, uh, you know, some people in the more DeSantis wing of the Republican Party these days, they uh, think Trump should have been more uh, bullish, I guess, in reopening the country more aggressively. But uh, I figured I would ask you because you've been following this uh, so closely. Uh, right. L- let me ask you about this. I know it was reported and you can straighten me out and I know you will if any of this is inaccurate. It was reported that you were suspended from Twitter in June of 2021 for sharing uh, vaccine disinformation. And and that that phrase, uh, disinformation, I always find so interesting because it's so subjective in terms of who gets to make the judgment about what information actually is. Would you characterize yourself as uh, anti-vaccine? Well, respectfully, that's the wrong question. I think you should ask me what I tweeted, um, and I will tell you what I tweeted. What I tweeted that got me suspended from Twitter in 2021 
was that women were reporting their own menstrual dysregulation subsequent to receiving mRNA injections, and that other women who were in close quarters with them were also experiencing menstrual problems. That's what I tweeted. Um, It turns out, subsequent to a lawsuit by attorneys general of Louisiana and Missouri, that the people who colluded to deplatform were Twitter, but also the White House, the CDC, and the Department of Homeland Security. And they took mm-hmm. this one tweet of mine and uh, and not only deplatformed me, but coordinated a, a global smear campaign against me. Well, that is one of the most important things I've ever written in my life. It's 100% accurate. Um, And if that conversation had not been silenced, millions of women would not now be suffering from um, the loss of their fertility. Because, indeed, two years later, there's a a 13 to 20 percent drop in live births. There are a million missing babies in Europe. Countries like Scotland have had double the usual rates pre-2021 of um, child uh, mortality and um, uh, spontaneous abortion and miscarriage. And now we know uh, that that tweet was prescient as well as being accurate because I now have 3,500 doctors and scientists working under me and my colleague Amy Kelly um, in a War Room Daily Cloud Pfizer documents analysis project in which these experts are going through the 55,000 documents released under court order by Pfizer and the FDA, well, by the FDA, that are Pfizer's internal documents. And what we see there is a 360-degree attack, especially on female sexual and reproductive health. And we see why women are having menstrual problems, because the lipid nanoparticles in the injection um, coalesce and accumulate in the ovaries, and they cross the placenta, and they enter the breast milk, and they're poisoning babies. And the Pfizer documents are replete with scores of of dead babies, dead fetuses, um, a section Pfizer documents with over 80% miscarriage rate, uh, spontaneous abortion rate, um, and now we know the mechanism. So the people who silenced me have blood on their hands because they silenced a conversation that would have saved millions of women uh, and babies from catastrophic outcomes. And the last thing I'll say is there's now a 40% rise in deaths in childbirth, and that is because the placentas of women are now compromised by the lipid nanoparticles, and so they're dying in childbirth from things like septicemia and hemorrhages. So, you know, I don't think you should be asking me if I'm an anti-vaxxer. You should be asking Twitter and the White House why they risked women's health and babies' health in a way uh, so as to murder them and sterilize women. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Naomi Wolf. She's the author of many books, including the new book, The Bodies of Others, The New Authoritarians, COVID-19, and the War Against the Human. If you want to learn more about the uh, Pfizer documents situation that uh, Dr. Wolf just alluded to, you can go to dailyclout.io. There's a lot of interesting stuff on on there, not only about the Pfizer situation, but a variety of other uh, subjects that were just uh, touching the surface on here. Uh, Naomi, one of the things that I think people struggle with, including myself, is where to find accurate information. Now, uh, um, 
uh, you go to, for instance, the CDC website, and I know uh, a lot of our listeners may not have the highest opinion of the CDC, but uh, it, a lot of, for many years, it was considered a pretty reputable public health authority by a lot of Americans. And they specifically go out of their way to claim that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe for people that are are pregnant, that are breastfeeding, that are trying to get pregnant. And if uh, the documents that you cite on your website indicate that that's not the case, how are Americans supposed to know where to go for accurate information? If the CDC is saying one thing, if the NIH is saying another, if the manufacturers of these drugs are saying another, if the uh, government authorities like Dr. Fauci and even presidents are saying another, where do people know in terms of what authorities uh, are credible? Well, you know, people need to think for themselves. And we certainly know by now that governments often lie to us. And we know that giant corporations often lie to us. And the pharmaceutical industry has a long and robust history of lying to people um, and saying that things are safe and effective when they aren't, you know, ranging from thalidomide to silicone breast implants to, um, you know, vaginal mesh. You know, I could go on and on. Um, But it's kind of a theoretical question to me because the 70 reports that my team of 3,500 doctors and scientists have put together link to the internal Pfizer documents released under court order. So, and the links are right there. So that's, you know, in journalism, that's the gold standard, right? If it's a primary source, doc, um, it's, it's not anyone's opinion. You can see it for yourself. Uh, and it's it's true. Um, so uh, I guess people have to be discerning. And uh, unfortunately, legacy media has accepted millions of dollars from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and later from the CARES Act to, uh, quote, overcome vaccine hesitancy, unquote. So you're not going to get accurate reporting from CNN or NPR or MSNBC. They took the money. Um, but there are independent sites out there, uh, many of them on Substack, which is a wonderful platform. I hope it endures. Um, and there you just have to be a critical thinker and check the links, you know, and ideally they're linking to, again, primary source documents, as we do at Daily Cloud. I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you did, but last weekend the Wall Street Journal had uh, a pretty interesting uh, commentary uh, l- to going into the uh, vaccine side effects and how these have been neglected by a lot of public officials. And that's not really the kind of thing that we've seen in the, the Wall Street Journal over the course of the last three years. Do you think this is a representative of a sea change that we're starting to see in media that now subjects like exploring the side effects of the vaccine may no longer be verboten in mainstream news outlets like the journal. I mean, you know, maybe, I mean, it's certainly an important signal. The wall street journal ran that piece, but again, I, I think we need to snap out of our hypnosis, right? We, we can't let ourselves be grateful that, you know, there may be some sea change uh, by people over whom we have no control. We have to recognize that 
um, these news outlets should have been running this story two and a half years ago. And they should have been asking the hard questions as I was, and I lost everything, you know, professionally for being a journalist, for asking the kinds of questions I've been celebrated for asking for 35 years about women's health and well-being. Um, You know, the Wall Street Journal, I think the Wall Street Journal has blood on its hands, you know, and so does the New York Times. I mean, I remember, you know, every legacy news outlet that took the money and didn't do any reporting on these injections that was real reporting, they now have blood on their hands. I will never forget Apoorva Mandavili, who was the um, COVID reporter at the New York Times, um, and she would respond to me on Twitter, and she started to say, you know, vaccines are safe and effective for pregnant women. And I had been following this very carefully, and I was like, you know, Apoorva, where? Where are those data sets? Where is that study? And she couldn't tell me. Um, And she... You know, the New York Times also had a giant map on its front page, which most of you will remember. There were similar maps in many news outlets uh, that purported to show, you know, dark red sections of the country where the virus was out of control. And then nice, cool green sections where people were, you know, obediently taking their mRNA vaccines. And I asked her, where are the data sets that underlie this um, COVID chart? And she couldn't answer that either. And I, you know, my company uses government data in exactly the same way. Um, we we reveal government databases in, a, you know, a user-friendly way. So it's the exact same business. And if you can't see the data sets, there's literally no way to know if that map is representing anything real. So here's a reporter telling women to get injected without any evidence that it's safe or effective, um, not asking any questions of the manufacturer or of the government about uh, whether, in fact, it's safe and effective for pregnant women. There was, at that point, zero study, real study, showing that it was safe and effective for pregnant women. And at the same time, you know, the paper of record was showing a fake map where there there was no access to the underlying data sets. So it's... um, It's... How can I put it? I think we have to stop being so grateful for Mm. little drips of truth and little drips of real journalism and instead be furious um, and and take legal action against all of these institutions that colluded in telling us lies in a way that killed and injured people. I mean, you should see my inbox. You know, people's healthy 22-year-old sons with heart transplants – People's healthy, you know, sons and daughters having knee surgery or shoulder replacement. Joint pain is the number one um, side effect in the Pfizer documents. Uh, People crippled with muscle pain. Myalgia is the number two side effect. Um, People constantly getting COVID if they're vaccinated. COVID is the number three side effect. In fact, Pfizer knew in November of 2020 that the vaccines did not did not work to stop COVID. Um, Their language is vaccine failure. People telling me that, you know, about their daughters or daughter-in-law's miscarriages and late spontaneous abortions or babies born with uh, malformations, uh, mutations. Um, All of this is in the Pfizer documents. Uh, Rochelle Walensky uh, resigned 
five days after we published our Report 69, which shows that Pfizer knew that more than 50% of the moms and babies in their adverse event list had serious adverse events, including fetal fatalities. And Pfizer's language is due Mm. to transplacental exposure to the vaccine. So they know there's something in the vaccine that kills babies in utero. And also Pfizer knew that breast milk was being poisoned by mRNA and babies in the study uh, 69, and anyone can see this chart for themselves, it's pinned on daily clout, um, you know, are, are ingesting polyethylene glycol, which is a petroleum byproduct in their mother's milk. So this is what was kept from us. These are the secrets that were kept from us. So these, you know, every legacy news outlet that did not ask what the evidence was that it was safe to breastfeed or what the evidence was that it was safe for pregnant women to take this or, you know, why did the, the FDA wait four months before telling parents about the elevated risk of myocarditis or any of the questions that they didn't ask, they too are complicit in what is a, a clearly now a mass murder event. The um, w- one of the things, just the media outlet that owns the uh, Wall Street Journal also is the parent outlet of the Fox News Channel. They right. were the home of uh, the most watched person in cable news on prime time, Tucker Carlson. After he was fired, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had tweeted that Fox fires Tucker Carlson five days after he crosses the red line by acknowledging that the TV networks pushed a deadly and ineffective vaccine to please their pharma advertisers. And then he goes on, but he basically draws the parallel between the coverage that Tucker Carlson was doing on Big Pharma and the vaccine issue and the fact that he's no longer employed by Fox News. Do you share that cynicism on, um, well, I don't know if, if cynicism is the right word, but do you share that hunch that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. expressed there that maybe Tucker's commentary on the pharmaceutical industry might have played a role in him being fired? Interesting. Well, I know that Project Veritas has just broken a story in which someone with an undercover camera was talked caught talking about what the real cause of Mr. Carlson's firing was. I haven't seen it yet, but the headline suggested it was linked to Dominion, the Dominion voting settlement. I personally think um, that the reason is is more likely to do with the January 6th footage that uh, Mr. Carlson released and that he kind of threatened or promised to release a second tranche of, um, that footage changed everything. And, uh, and I, do, I, I do remember uh, Senator Schumer, my senator, um, threatening uh, Fox News and saying that was a mistake, that was a mistake. And I know politicians at that level, and a threat like that um, is real, and there's some substance in it that we don't know about. You got to come back because I have a lot of other questions for you and we're we're just about out of time. Um, I hope everybody checks out the book. Uh, Naomi Wolf's new book is uh, definitely going to be creating a lot of conversations, very thought provoking. It's called The Bodies of Others. You can also check out the website dailyclout.io. I'll just end with what do you think the future of media is? And are you optimistic in light of 
of the fact that Elon Musk, who seems to have a very different approach to the people that banned you when they were running Twitter, he's now running Twitter, and you have more and more people migrating towards independent outlets like Substack and similar services. Are you hopeful about the next generation of media? Um, Well, we're really kind of at a crossroads, and it can be either very good or very bad. In this country, it is true that uh, independent media is booming and um, legacy media is is collapsing, and that is good. Um, But in countries like Australia, Canada, Britain, the media media lockdown is, is pretty complete. And, you know, algorithms can free you or they can stifle. Uh, conversation also in the World Economic Forum, which is a big driver of all of this tyranny, has made it clear that they're going to focus on more and more and more censorship. And you know, I personally have been targeted in the last few days by Ofcom, Britain's um, media watchdog. So uh, even while things are maybe opening up here, um, the press is being you know chilled and intimidated in countries like Britain. So it's really up to us. Um, you know, we have to take our country back and Western Europe has to take its democracies back. And, you know, around the world, people have to throw off these shackles. Uh, but it's not going to happen without um, all of us being much braver than we've been and um, much more resistant. Naomi Wolf, thank you so much for the time this morning. I hope we can do this again soon. I would love that. Thank you so much. Take thank care. you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I wanted the fame, but not to cover a news week. Oh, well, guess beggars can't be choosy. Wanted to receive attention from my music. Wanted to be This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Four open lines. 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. Uh, we have a big Christmas Eve party in our house. And there's a, I think they call it a white elephant. You're familiar with these, right? Where instead of buying all 50 people who attend the Christmas party a gift, you basically, you you buy a gift and then you draw a number. And everybody throws their gifts in the middle, wrapped. And then when it's your turn, it's like kind of the gift equivalent of the Royal Rumble. When it's your turn, you uh, get to pick a gift. And then everyone else sees what gift you picked. And then the person that goes next, they can choose, and again, it depends on the rules of this particular game, but they can either choose to open a gift on their own and and, cha- and trade with you, or they could choose to steal your gift, and then in which case you get to open another gift. Again, the rules vary somewhat, but that's the whole thing. So uh, in any event, on Christmas Eve, I ended up with a very nice griddle. Very nice griddle to make pancakes and all sorts of other things that you make, you know, make make stuff on. And I have been looking for this griddle since December 25th 
because I think my wife and I left it because we're busy chasing after a one-year-old at the time. We left it at my dad's house. So they said they haven't seen it. And this griddle has gone missing. Now, I would hope, these are all (laughs) family members and friends, that I would hope that someone would not have taken this griddle home that didn't belong to them. But I will say, um, I did not get a gift from this white elephant gift exchange. I'd like to know where that griddle is. And I know I have several family members and friends that listen to this program who were at that Christmas Eve. I'd like to know who has seen this griddle. I'd like to know where it is. And uh, because I'll tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to go out and buy my own griddle. And then as soon as I do, someone will come to me and say, oh, you know what? Is this your griddle? I've had it in my closet since December 25th. Is this yours? So I'm not going to do that. So uh, I'm going to figure something else out here. But if you're someone that took that griddle, I would like it back. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> two, two things, please. First, about the telly TV. Mm-hmm. I'm, looking at, I'm looking at it. What would keep me from putting like a piece of decorative masking tape or uh, wallpaper across that bar and just blocking it out? Well, nothing, but then you don't get the stock quotes and the news updates. Yeah, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a free TV. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, nothing would stop you from that. Also, uh, you know, once you see that the, the scrolling thing on the bottom, it's hard to not see it anymore. Like the logo on the right hand side, you usually don't notice it. But once you, you know, each channel has its own logo. Yeah, once you the notice bu- that logo, it becomes annoying because you can't un. It's like my God, it's taken out up like one sixteenth of my my screen for God's sake. So <laughs> you, you, it, I, 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 I would just mask it off. Have you ever seen a movie called The Twonky? T W O N K Y. No, in fact, I don't think I've ever heard of it. Okay, it's a great old movie with Hans Conried, <clears throat> and these free TVs start showing up in people's homes. This is when it was, you know, new and black and white. And you'd set it up, and it would start to, like, take over your life. Because if you didn't do what it wanted, it would shoot a laser beam into your head and make you a dumb person. Which I think there was kind of like a, a double entendre there, you know, about TV making you dumb. Yeah, but, I, I'm not familiar with it, Rick. Yeah, look it up. You'll love it. I will. I'll the check tw- it out. The twonky. The I'll, twonky. I will check it out. Thank you, Rick. Although... My movie watching time is few and far between these days. Oh, those of you that are holding, Joe, Mike, Janet, Larry, Corey, I will get to as many of you as we can after the top of the hour. A lot of other, no more guests, so we'll have plenty of time to phone calls. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, I'll tell you, this weekend, I read one of the most thought-provoking, one of the most fascinating articles I've ever read, also one of the saddest articles that I've ever read, and it's from the uh, New York Times Magazine. It's called uh, The Dementia Paradox, and it was really just... uh, I'm not sure how much detail I'm going to go into with this, but I've thought a lot about dementia over the years, and I'm not trying to be ironic in saying that. And uh, I had my uncle Carmine, who was very close to, had Parkinson's, and he, you know, he had his memory, but he was definitely dealing with dementia towards the end of his life, and it was one of the things that uh, that hastened his demise. He had uh, dementia with Louis body. So I've thought a lot about what might happen to me if I ever deal with dementia, what might happen with my wife if she's ever got to deal with dementia, and what might happen with my parents. And when I've visited these subjects on the air, I've really been impressed uh, with the wisdom that a lot of listeners have had. And I've really been at times really moved at a lot of the emotional turmoil that people have gone through, and at other times have been very sad at people who have been taken advantage of by the system. There's this one fella who calls from Queens all the time, and his wife is dealing with dementia, and it sounds like, I don't know the details of his case, obviously, but it sounds like he's gotten a raw deal by the people that are supposed to be looking out for his wife. I know other people that um, feel that their husband or wife has been really taken advantage of by the children. And so I read this story about uh, a family in Iowa, and it's a complicated case to some extent, but in other ways it's not. And it really causes me to think about a fundamental question that I'd never thought about before. And it's a question I'm going to pose to you right now. When cognitive decline or dementia, when cognitive decline changes people, should we respect their new desires and their new wishes? If someone is not the same person today as they were 25 or 30 years ago, what should you do? Should that? I'm not talking about letting them uh, hold their hand over a hot stove or gouge out their eye. No, of course not. But if someone's not in immediate danger to themselves, should you respect their wishes? And believe it or not, this is an issue that doctors and bioethicists and philosophers and journalists and most important, family members of people who have had dementia have been wrestling with since at least 1991. Because in 1991, there was, there's been a lot of academic papers written about this, but there was someone that wrote a story, uh, a fellow by the name of, uh, well, anyway, there there was a story in the Journal of the American Medical Association telling the story of a woman named Margot. And I don't know if Margot is a real person. I think she was. But the Journal of the American Medical Association had this article by a physician. And Margot, according to this article, was 55 years old and had early onset Alzheimer's disease and couldn't recognize anyone around her. 
but she was very happy. She was she spent her days painting and listening to music. She read mystery novels, too, often the same mystery novel day after day because the mystery remained mysterious because she would forget it. And despite her illness, or maybe, according to some people, because of it, the physician that wrote this paper said Margot is undeniably one of the happiest people I have known. And that's not that unusual, I think. You know, I, I'm, I always remember the story of Ronald Reagan, who dealt with Alzheimer's disease. One, when he was still able to walk around and move around, one of the things that he apparently, and this was after the point that he could no longer speak, the, one of the things that he really enjoyed doing was skimming the pool. He really enjoyed skimming his pool and taking his leaves out of his pool. Now, eventually it came to the point where he couldn't even do that. But there was a time when that was the last thing that he really seemed to enjoy. He would light up whenever he got to move, the, skim the leaves out of his pool. So what the Secret Service would do, apparently, is they would just fill the swimming pool every day with leaves to let Reagan skim the pool and do something that he enjoyed. So um, a couple of years after that article in the Journal of the American Medical Association was published, the philosopher, not a doctor, but a philosopher and a constitutional jurist by the name of Ronald Dworkin, revisited the happy Margot in his 1993 book, Life's Dominion. And he uh, he asked his readers to imagine something that I'm going to ask you to imagine, and then I may give you some other story, uh, some other color based on this story of this family in the New York Times. The, story, the book's Life's Dominion. Imagine, he asked readers, that years ago when she was fully competent, Margot had written a formal document explaining that if she ever developed Alzheimer's disease, she should not be given life-saving medical treatment. Or even that in the event she should be, or, or even that in that event, meaning Alzheimer's disease, she should be killed as soon and as painlessly as possible. What does an ethical doctor do there? Do you kill the Margot that's living now with Alzheimer's, even though she seems happy as can be? Because the the former Margot, the past Margot, the one that was of sound mind and body and was not uh, dealing with a brain addled with dementia, wanted to be dead. What do you do? So, and that this comes up Often, there's a movie, Still Alice, which is just very, it's a wonderful film with Alec Baldwin and Julianne Moore, and they deal with some of these same situations. In Dworkin's view, this philosopher that wrote this book, it was the former Margot, the sound mind and body Margot, whose wishes deserved moral weight. And his book, he made a distinction between two kinds of interests, experiential and critical. An experiential interest was reactive and bodily, the pleasure of eating ice cream, let's say. A critical interest was much more cerebral. It reflects the character of a person and how she wanted her life to be lived. And in the case of an Alzheimer, advanced Alzheimer's disease, Dworkin argued that there's a danger that critical interests would be usurped by experiential ones. So a lot of philosophers over the last 30 years have devoted themselves to reconsidering Margot. And they accuse this philosopher, Dworkin, 
of holding too limited a view of meaning. Couldn't a life of tiny pleasures be meaningful, even if it wasn't the product of some sophisticated life plan? Critics have asked why we should privilege the decisions of a person who effectively no longer exists over the expressed choices of the person who is sitting before us here and now. On a practical level, what authority could the then-self possibly exert over the new self? And while Dworkin's theory might apply to those in advanced stages of the disease, it speaks less to a majority of patients in the mild and moderate phases, the sort of in-between Margot's, someone that's not full-blown but has been diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's disease, and they're starting to lose it. What do you do? Do you respect the wishes of someone who has dementia? I'll give you one example, and this is the very moving story of uh, of this woman from uh, Iowa, in Denison, Iowa, by the name of Diane Norellius. Diane Norellius had a wonderful life with her husband, Bill, who she was very devoted to. And in 2011 or so, 2011, after 53 years of marriage, her husband dies. And she has three children, two daughters and a, and a son. Four years later, the son dies of cancer. And apparently that was the straw that broke the camel's back. She really started to lose it. Both of her daughters moved away. One moved to uh, Oregon, one moved somewhere else. And so in October of 2017, Diane Norellius stopped answering the phone. Her two daughters, who didn't live near her, called and called. And so they would call Diane, Diane's boyfriend, Denzel Nelson, as well. And whenever Denzel picked up, he would only say, she doesn't want to talk to you. But usually, he didn't pick up. And the women worried that their mother, who was 81 years old, was sick or maybe even dead. So after a few days of not being able to get in touch with her mother, they flew home where they grew up to Denison, Iowa, a small little town of around 8,000 people surrounded by cornfields. And when their mother answered the door and saw her daughter standing on the lawn, she hesitated. And then she looks over at her boyfriend, Denzel, who had come to stand by her side. One of her daughters, the younger one, who's 59 years old, says, can't we come in, Mom? And according to them, they paint a very bleak picture. No food in the house, only ice cream. They said it was unkempt. They said their mother didn't look well-dressed. The boyfriend has a very different story. And after a while, Diane, the mom here, went to her bedroom and lied face down on the bed. And um, apparently, according to the daughters, this boyfriend, who their mother was now living with, by the way, it's one of the daughter's former father-in-laws. That adds a little bit of an element of intrigue. One of the daughters is divorced from this guy's son. Okay, just keep that in mind. So this guy is an 84-year-old man, and uh, he was somebody that would work on their their property from time to time. And according to the daughters, she did not have a fond opinion of this guy, Denzel. She said he smelled bad. She said he stopped by for coffee sometimes, and she wished, wished he wouldn't. Now, all of a sudden, Denzel had moved in, and Diane was referring to him as the love of my life. 
And the sisters felt that their joyous mother grew dour. She said mean things about dear friends. She stopped seeing them as much, and then not much at all. And um, ultimately, in September of 2017, they had a doctor in Iowa finally give form to what Diane's daughters somehow knew and couldn't see. Denzel had taken Diane to the emergency room because she fell short of breath. And there she was given a cognitive test and scored poorly. She didn't know the name of the president, and she definitely had holes in her timeline, according to the doctor. And the doctor diagnosed her with dementia. So shortly after receiving her diagnosis, Diane rearranged her affairs. She gave the boyfriend her financial power of attorney. Then the boyfriend drove her to a lawyer's office where she redrafted her will, granting him the right to live in her little house, a small residence on their property when she died. Around that time, the daughter also found out that Diane had dissolved her financial trust, which held all her assets and investments. Then, ultimately, the uh, these daughters... They have two sheriff's deputies pull up, enter the house carrying a temporary protective order that the sister's lawyer had filed that day with the court. And under the terms of this order, the boyfriend would be immediately removed from the home and so restrained from committing further acts of abuse or threats. All she's saying, the mother, is where's Denzel? Where's Denzel? Where's Denzel? She clearly wants to be around him. The daughters decide to move in, and um, this fella, the boyfriend, goes and lives above his son's office because he's got nowhere else to stay. Son happens to be a lawyer. And by the way, uh, the daughters, apparently, they weren't necessarily the best caregivers of their mother. She almost uh, grinded her hand into a garbage disposal. So the son of the boyfriend, follow me so far. So we got a dementia-addled woman, her 84-year-old boyfriend, her two daughters, the son of the boyfriend, who also, yes, happens to be the ex-husband of the daughter, is a lawyer. Isn't that perfect? Lawyer. So the father, the boyfriend, goes downstairs to the old cafeteria or the break room, and he's telling one of his son's legal colleagues about this and the son the uh, colleague says well i don't think that's right so peter leo a young associate lawyer thought this temporary restraining order or temporary protective order was a total miscarriage of justice the the judge had agreed to forcibly separate an older couple based on virtually nothing at all just a few sentences written by the woman's daughters the sisters claimed that diane was sick and being abused and was in need of immediate medical care But they had provided the court with no medical records to prove it. And the judge hadn't asked for them. He hadn't even bothered to speak with this woman. Under Iowa law, that's not permitted. Apparently, judges hear the word dementia, and they're liable to believe the situation is an emergency. And if adult daughter says it is, they sign what you want them to sign. So this lawyer starts representing the boyfriend to... He doesn't think his girlfriend needs a legal guardian, but if she does, he wants it to be him. And ultimately, they go through the court system, and I'm not going to get into the whole details of this case, but it turns out that this woman, the woman with dementia, is entitled to her own lawyer. And she chooses, she asks to meet 
with the boyfriend's lawyer. And she chooses to have the boyfriend's lawyer represent her. And it's a very sad legal battle. But basically, you have this very bitter family dispute hinging on, and I just linked to the whole article, and it's a heartbreaking story and a fascinating story if you want to read it, facebook.com slash moranofan. A bitter family dispute hinges on an impossible question. When cognitive decline changes people, should we respect their new desires, even if it doesn't seem like the kind of thing they would do when they were of sound mind and body? So I'm going to ask you right now to... Answer this impossible question as best you can. If someone has dementia, and again, dementia, from what I understand and have read and observed, is not like flicking a light switch. One day you're perfectly normal, and the next day you can't remember your own name. It goes in phases. So should we respect the wishes, the desires, the decisions of who to date, of where to leave their money, Uh, as long as they're not being abused, of where they want to live, of how they want to live. If someone has dementia, if someone seems happy and well-adjusted, should that person be able to continue to make decisions? Should those decisions be respected, as long as we're not talking about uh, serious physical harm here? What do you think? 800-848-9222, that is the question. A question. Since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. Let me begin with uh, David in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Um, This is a difficult issue for me because my mother and grandmother both suffered from dementia. Um, and it was very difficult to deal with them because their personalities completely changed and not for the better. Um, but listening to this reminds me of what happened to Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek mm-hmm. or Brooke, or Brooke Astor, um, who you probably also know that situation. When you have people who swoop in to take advantage of people who are not capable of making their own decisions properly, I have a big problem. The fact that this guy had her change her will and, and, and had him, his name put on her property and stuff like that, that smells really funny to me. And someone like that should not be able to choose her own attorney. They should, the court should step in, and I don't know about Iowa, but I know in California and New York you can get a trustee appointed, which is what should have happened, because there needs to be an objective attorney appointed, not someone who's a son of, of the person involved or a friend of the person involved. I mean, that, that's, very, that's very smelly. And um, I'll just finish with this, Frank. This is something that could happen to any of us. Sure. Because of the history in my family, I'm deeply concerned that this could happen to me at some point. And if I made a decision that I didn't want medical care when that happened, I would hope that my family would respect that. Because right now in, in my current state where I know what's going on, I wouldn't want to go on like that, you know, because I've seen the suffering Having my grandmother, who couldn't even change herself, and, and having my mom waste away in a nursing home until one morning I get a phone call that she's non-responsive, and then it turns out she's dead. I wouldn't want to put people who love me through that. Well, and, David, and I think that this is important. Yeah, I do too, and I'm sorry you went through that. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. It's it's terrible enough to lose a loved one under the best of circumstances, but um, the boyfriend seemed to have. 
answers to all these things that the daughters said were nefarious. And a lot of people around town thought that uh, their daughters, the daughters, were after their mother's money, as the boyfriend said they were. Other people said they're just big snobs, rich girls, too good for Denison, Iowa, who couldn't stand to see their mother with a poor old horseshoer. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. And basically, he had um, what um, after the appeal, there was all sorts of lawsuits. And I mean, it's just a horrible situation. And whenever you can stay out of the courts, I have a very close family friend that is dealing with this. She's in a big fight that's gone on for more than almost 10 years over their mother's estate with her sister. I have told all my siblings that if, uh, you know, we have the same father, different mothers. I have always told my siblings that when our father dies, I am not expecting a cent, and you are welcome to um, to every bit of whatever money he has. And uh, I've said the same thing under different situations with my mother. I'm not looking for any money from anybody. And unfortunately, so often money seems to cloud people's judgment. I don't think this is the case here. In the case of, and you'll read the article, you tell me. But I think these two women love their mother, and I think this boyfriend also loved her. And I think they had very different ways of looking out for her. But I think the fundamental question is, when cognitive decline changes people, should we respect their new desires? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Oz is in New Jersey. Hello, Oz. Oh, good morning, Frank. First of all, that conversation with Naomi Wolf was fantastic. Thank you. I hope you have her back. Really I, good. I absolutely will. I had a lot of other questions for her, and she yeah. she doesn't give short answers. So if people no. think I didn't challenge yeah. her enough, it's because it's because no. I didn't have enough of an opportunity to get in and everything I wanted to get in. Well, I didn't get that impression at all. But anyway, going back to the, the question about dementia, um, I've got a unique perspective here because my mom passed away a year ago. She had dementia for three years. Best piece of advice I was ever given about how to handle it is don't expect her to come into your world. You have to go into her world because it's two different worlds once they have dementia. Um, the story you told is just absolutely heartbreaking. And like you said, it's hard to really determine without knowing specifically the people what their intentions were. It's not uncommon that when this situation arises that there's money, questions, questions. There's legal battles. Fortunately, I didn't have to uh, handle any of that stuff because my mom lived with me. I moved her in with me. I work from home, so I was able to take care of her, bathe her in the morning, and and feed her and all that. Um, As far as the the fundamental question about their desires, I think there's a difference here. My father died of cancer 30 years ago, and he suffered for three years. He was in pain 24-7, but he was lucid. And he was able to be able to say, listen, this isn't a life. I don't want treatment anymore. He was able to rationally reason this out. My mother, on the other hand, when you have dementia, you're in a different world. It's, the dynamic probably is more like a, a, a parent and a child. Our roles became reversed. As far as what I would allow her to do and not allow her to do, and I hate to use that word, um, obviously like a father and a, ch- and a child. You know, she liked to take those, you know, when you get a, a loaf of bread, the tie that ties the right. the, right. She liked to form those into hearts, 
which I have a big bag of those that I still kept. She liked to do that. She would laugh. She would smile. So there were things that she liked to do that brought her joy. And of course, I'm going to let her do it. I'm not going to let her walk outside by herself. I'm not going to let her cook, go by the stove. So it's a really individual question. But as far as if she would have 30 years ago said, if I ever get dementia, I want you to kill me. That's the, that's what you said originally. Or, well, that or was that was want... the that was the the supposition by Dworkin, this philosopher that wrote this book, Life's Dominion, in 1993. He raised that question. Yeah, I I totally disagree with it. I think that um, she seemed happy. She um, was in her own world. Luckily, very luckily, I was able to take care of her, so she was safe. She was fed. She was clothed. She was around her son. Um, So that caveat is in there also. But I am against that. She's not lucid at that point. She can't make that determination. We don't know if she's happy, if she's comfortable, what her day-to-day feelings are. So I would be very, very uncomfortable with with, – stopping uh you know taking care of her of course when it gets to the point where they're physically um in pain or you know quality of life at the very very end the last couple of weeks she didn't eat anymore Mm. and she went into the hospital and you know at that point you've got to make the decision you want to just keep her comfortable you want to keep her alive and of course at that point it was no i don't want to keep her alive if she's if, if she's dying you know at that point that's different but while she's alive and while she's eating and while she's smiling and listening to music, um, you know, that's a different story. And there's also something else called sundowning. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, yes. In fact, I have. I have known people that have uh, had loved ones that had that same situation. Oh, my God. It's a real thing. And I didn't realize that because um, the, the physical therapist came in one day and said, oh, she's sundowning. I said, what, what are you kidding me? And I talked to the doctor. He goes, oh, yeah. Once the sun goes down. They start hallucinating, they get disoriented, and all night long she'd be calling my name. It's actually harder on the caregiver. Yeah, you know, I'm not saying, and thank you for the call, Oz, and I'm sorry you had to go through all that. I'm sorry your your parents are there, and uh, they're lucky to have you as such a devoted son. Thank you for the call. I'm not saying this is the case because my cardinal rule when it comes to public figures that I've never met, especially me as someone that's not a doctor, I don't believe that um, that it's appropriate to make judgments about people's mental state or their cognitive state unless they've been examined. But a lot of people, not a lot of people, I've heard some people say of Joe, Joe Biden that they think he has some sort of sundowning issue, which is why he tries not to do anything at night or in the morning for the most part. They think that he's, for the most part, during, during the day he's okay – but at night, you have a situation where he's not as sharp, uh, to put it mildly. It's not my consensus. I, that's not what I'm saying. But I've heard that from other people that say this not from a politically malicious point of view, but really more of an analytical one. I'm not saying that's the case. So don't call and say, oh, you didn't vote for Biden. You're saying he's got this or that. I'm not saying it. I've heard other people who I respect say that. 800-848-9222. We're going to do the $1,000 minute in uh, a bit as well. You know, again, because David said, oh, that guy, the boyfriend, took her power of attorney in this. He seemed to, and you'll read the article, facebook.com slash Morano fan. He seemed to have explanations for everything. 
He said that he had been granted power of attorney only because she had a tremor and worried that she might occasionally need him to sign checks on her behalf if her hands were shaking. The boyfriend said the cash withdrawals from the bank account were for their trips out of town. They did make a lot of trips out of town. They would drive to Montana, to Arizona, to wherever. And he offered to turn over his bank and his credit card statements to the court so the court could look. He said he had nothing to hide. He said that they were planning to marry only because she wanted to. It was her who would propose. So I don't know. It's a sad situation. But I think it all comes down to this fundamental question. When cognitive decline changes people, should we respect their new desires? And I don't know the answers to that. Uh, Gracie is in Rockland. Hello, Gracie. Hi, Frank. Listen, uh, I, I'm uh, there. I'm going to be 76. So as an older person, you have to have all your ducks in a row. You yeah. have to have a good you have to have a good uh, trust or whatever, you know, your legal stuff with your lawyer to have everything uh, exactly what you feel. Now, the point is, you could say what you want while you're still living. But once you start going downhill, uh, you hope that your children are good that uh, they'll take care of you. And I don't, I, I mean, look, this is what you're repeating now is only what you said. But those two daughters, I seemed like they weren't satisfied. If they were so worried about the mother when they moved away, one of them couldn't have t- taken her? Yeah. If the, she was the, still halfway decent. Gracie. And I, as a, yeah, go ahead. And no, as an older person, I, I, I mean, I know you have no time now, but uh, uh, I, of course uh, I know people that are in different stages. And one of my friends uh, did go early onset. And let me tell you, she started like 48 and she didn't die to 60. She like read the book. It's like the three stages of dementia. You know, so I recommend the book 36 Hours. Of course, it was a long time ago. Listen, thank you for letting me uh Gracie, um, thank talk. you. Thank you. Uh, I wouldn't worry about dementia with you anytime soon. You sound sharper than I do. Uh, I want to thank Brother Greg Cellini, uh, who is a Franciscan brother of Brooklyn. He is very committed to Franciscan um you know, catechism and sharing God's love and inspiring others. I, I've interviewed him. He's a great guy, a wonderful man. Man of God and a man that makes me want to uh, pray more. He's very inspiring and a great educator at uh, at St. Francis College. He uh, just sent me an SMS text message letting me know that he is going to be praying to St. Anthony to find my griddle. So thank you, Brother Greg. I appreciate that. And you know what? You talk about synchronicity. I just saw an advertisement. There was a griddle. There's a griddle on television right now. And it says breakfast better. And I really do believe I can make breakfast better. You know, I tried to make my wife a pancake on Mother's Day, and I totally botched the pancake. I really think if I had the griddle, it would have worked out much better. All right, Joe, Mike, Rocco, Larry, Corey, if you want to hold, I will get to you. We are going to play the $1,000 Minute in a moment. So if you are uh, listening and want to try and win $1,000, be the seventh caller right now. To 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. And if you're the seventh caller, we'll give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that, you'll win $1,000. Simple as that. And we'll continue with your calls. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Duran Duran singing Ordinary World. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Let's try and give away some money, shall we? It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let me say hello to Craig in Queens. Hello, Craig. Yes. Craig, uh, have you heard this contest before? I sort of kind of heard it, but I... Okay, really, right. uh, let me explain study. it to you. Let me explain it to you very quickly, okay? Um, I'm going to ask you 10 trivia questions. I would say nine of them are very easy, but they're they're very easy in a wide variety of different subjects. So you got to know a little bit about, uh, about a lot of things. Um, I'm, you're going to have 60 seconds to answer all 10 of them. The timer will begin after I ask you the first question. If you get a question right, we're going to just move on to the next one so that we can run through these as quickly as possible. And um, if you hear a, a wrong buzzer, that means you got the answer wrong. If you don't, if you hear the next question, that means you got the answer right. Okay, simple enough. Yeah, but I pretty much know a lot about nothing. Perfect. Then you are you are well situated for this. All right, um, let's get started. What is the plural of goose? Geese. What do you call a bicycle with three wheels? Tricycle. What legendary NBC sitcom ended 25 years ago this month? Friends. Ah, no, I'm sorry. It was uh, Seinfeld, Craig. Seinfeld, 25 years ago this month. We did a whole Seinfeld hour yesterday. I thought maybe you might have heard it. I'm sorry. Uh, Craig, yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information, and we will give you a consolation prize of, of some sort. So uh, Craig seemed like a nice guy. No, no, no. Was not friends. Friends ended in. Uh, I want to say I'm going to have to look that one up because I was not. Uh, I was not the biggest Friends fan. 2005. Okay, so that's 18 years ago. 18 years ago. All right, I can understand. It's a. It's understandable. Understandable. All right. A lot of people have been waiting to uh, comment on a wide variety of subjects. So any subject is fair game at this point. I have a few other things we're going to try and get to. Over the course of the next 16 minutes, but um, we'll let you have at it. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Mike in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Frank, how you doing? Good talking to you. Thanks. You too. Hey, listen, in regards to the uh, Alzheimer's um, uh, issue there, uh, having gone through this with my father, I, I believe that once they exhibit decline, um, all important issues are the curtains closed. Uh, I, I think that they're not in cognitive um, uh, position to be making important decisions at that point. And, and I think that uh, let this be a, uh, a lesson that to have your affairs in order. You know what I'm saying? As soon as you can. Yeah, I, I think that's an important lesson, and it's certainly one that bears repeating. But um, I'm wondering, let's say you you find your adult children are now trying to control your affairs and make you do things that you don't want to do. Should you have the freedom to distance yourself from them controlling your affairs? Great question. Um, 
we could debate this for hours. I, I just don't know. I think it's a, it's a horrible disease. The stress that it puts on the family um, of, of just of what comes along with the disease of constant care. And in the final stages, it gets so expensive that your parents who saved money their whole entire life disappears in a matter of months. And uh, it's sad. It's sad across the board. Yeah. You know, he was a radio guy. He worked for a, uh, a radio station in the 70s and 80s, WJLK in Asbury Park. I don't know if you've ever heard. Yeah, of no, 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 I, I have. I'm sorry that uh, that you had to go through that. I imagine that was a very, a very challenging thing. And I and I wouldn't want to do that to my children. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and, and we talk about the right to die. I having gone through this, I would not want to put my children through uh, that disease. It, it, it's sure. brutal on no, the family. Uh, understandable. It's, understandable. It's, 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 a, it's a tough. Um, it's a tough topic, you know, it really is. It's a tough life topic. But um, And in regards to your guests tonight, they're too smart. No more <laughs> smart people, Frank. I'm a dope. I mean, and you made me feel like even a bigger dope. You know who I want you to interview? The Sid the Moron guy. That's who I want to hear from. That, that's very funny. I'll work on it, Mike. He's tough to get. <laughs> We're in touch with his agent. All right. Um, you know, but just just to close the loop on the on the dementia situation, many adult children. By the way, let me say two things before we turn the page on this for today. We'll revisit this in the future because I think is it it is important thing for people to keep in mind. One. Uh, if I ever, God forbid, am addled with Alzheimer's or dementia, I'm going to make this clear to my wife and to my son or, or and any other heirs that I have. Everybody should assume that I want to live as long as possible. If I seem unhappy, if I seem like I'm, I'm throwing things or, you know, just unhappy, no, no, I'm just fine. Leave it, leave me alone. Everybody just assume, don't throw me in the ocean or anything. My stepmother said that to me, that when she, if she gets to a point where that, um, that, that there's, uh, that there's uh, now no more personality there, she wants to be, and my dad said the same thing. They want, they want to be shoved into the ocean. I want to state unequivocally, do not do that to me. I want to live in whatever form I'm living as long as possible. Throw some cheese at me. Turn up the radio, put on a talk station, and I will be, I will deal, okay? The second thing, in a a more serious manner, many adult children are surprised to learn that a diagnosis of dementia on its own does not disqualify a parent from making big decisions. The adult child assumes that the first pronouncement from a doctor that an older parent is cognitively impaired immediately flips some sort of decisional switch, rendering the parent incompetent to choose. That's not the case. Within medicine, there is no such switch. So to an informed clinician, patients are never capable or incapable in a global sense. Instead, they're capable or incapable of making a specific decision in a specific context in a specific moment. So in practice... That means that a person with dementia might retain what doctors call decision-making capacity for years and then lose it in stages. Maybe the complex choices you lose first, then simpler ones later on. For instance, you might lose the capacity to choose among treatment options but retain the capacity to decide what family member should make the decision for you. 
So it's not black and white. And I realize we're talking about complicated issues. And when you have 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes even to delve into one of these issues, maybe it doesn't do the topic justice. But uh, I think it's an important thing for everybody to think about. And I really want to encourage you to read this article. Again, I've linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Corey is in Florida. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. How are you? Hanging in there, Corey. What's on your mind? All right. Yes, I just wanted to uh, have a quick uh, little advice about oncology uh, from my dog. Uh, after I spent 50, I stopped counting like, uh, Greg Scarpa, you know, uh, <laughs> 50,000, but I like, like your wife, I just stole my car, my house, whatever. Um, I went to blue Pearl. They were excellent. They're on third Avenue in Brooklyn, pretty much right over the bridge. They have an excellent oncology. What, what about what the oncologist said there, uh, that the the uh, the brand name drugs w- might be more effective than the generic drugs? Do you put any stock in that? I, I you know, they, we never went over that, really. Yeah, I'm A skeptical. It was new stuff, so uh, I am too, but you never know. Uh, a lot of it they made in their own, uh, you know, laboratories there as well. So. Right, right, right. Well, so we'll see. I mean, thank you. Uh, the fact that our cat lost a pound is not a good sign. So it could be, it doesn't matter what medicine she's on right now, right? Or it could be something to do with her food. I don't know. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Rocco in Saratoga. Hello, Rocco. Good morning, Frank. Good morning to everyone out there. I hope everyone's doing well. How are you doing, Frank? Hanging in there. Thanks, Rocco. Yeah, I have more than hang in there. Frank, come on. I, I really appreciate your storytelling ability. Very, I appreciate you're a great that. Thank story. you. Nah, you're, you're a great storyteller. That's why I'm listening. Otherwise, and, and for the information and knowledge, uh, I'm an information nut, you know. So I can't really shed any uh, light on the dementia issue. I have no words of wisdom there. It's an unfortunate situation. I know a lot of families have to grow, go through. Um, I, I feel sorry for them for that. But I want to also thank you for that great uh, suggestion yesterday when having a social gathering or party. As far as no cell phone interruptions, don't bring your cell phone. As a matter of fact, my wife and I discussed it yesterday. We came up with an acronym. We could give it to you. It's NCPP. When we send out invitations from now on, NCPP, no cell phones, please. I love it. Okay, I love it, Rocco. See, I'm going to use that for right? my June 10th barbecue. It. That's for you. Right? Thank you yeah. very much. We're going to use it. We have happy hours every other week with our neighbors here. So I'll just, you know, when she texts out, she'll put NCPP. I love it. That's awesome, Rocco. And we'll say no cell. I love it. That replaces on you. Thank you, Rocco. That replaces the acronym we were originally going to use, which is NMB, no Matt Blaze. Don't worry. 800-848-9222. By the way, I, um, I did get a haircut yesterday, free of incident. No drama, no oversleeping, no, no, no problems. Got a haircut and it went very well. The only problem was, I don't think it's a result of dementia, my barber did tell me all of the same stories that he told me last month when I was here. And he's a younger guy, but I, I think he made, I have, maybe has a routine 
that has been optimal for him in terms of getting tips. And he told me a lot of those same stories. So I don't know where we're going with that. All right. 15 seconds of fame in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Andy B, who gifted us this song. I want to wish a happy birthday to Camille Goldman, who is a big wig over at Charter Spectrum. She also happens to be married to one of my closest and oldest friends. Also want to wish a uh, happy birthday to uh, my friend Don Pagano, who's a, uh, a great guy and uh, somebody that I've known for a long time as well. All right, without further ado, it is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. Call in with whatever comment you like at 800-848-9222. Can be a joke, could be a question, could be a, uh, a substantive political comment, could be an advertisement for your hardware store, whatever the case may be, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. John! Hey, Frank, I sent you an email about the Gateway Project. And uh, also, I got a free TV for you. Brand new flat screen if you want. Email me. Uh, perhaps I will. Roger. You know, children need their gymnasiums not only for physical exercise, but also to help combat childhood uh, obesity. Well said. 800-848-922. Rusty. Yeah. He keeps calling the mayor his friend. When's he going to stop that baloney? Him and him and uh, Bo. What do they compromise with this guy? The guy's no good, but they feed Kool Aid to each other. Get this bum off the station. He's no good. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jerry. Yeah, Frank. Federal question, rightness, and irreparable harm. Trump's got all three. It's up to the Supreme Court, not you, me, or. Jonathan Turley decided to get it in front of the court, get Cerciari immediately. It can be expedited. He needs to stop those state criminal cases. 800-848-9222. Joe. Yeah, Frank, look into the supplement acetyl-L-carnitine. Alcar, the best preventive for Alzheimer's for anyone. Joe. Hey, Frank. Listen, my mom had dementia. Even though she was sharp as a tag for maybe the first seven years of it, Little things like leaving the stove on all night or the door unlocked or the garage open overnight. That's what you got to watch for. Uh, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I hope you've been enjoying Jeopardy Masters as much as I have. And you know what I like? 
about all of the players. They seem to be quite friendly with each other. Yeah, I would agree with that, Carol, on both counts. And I didn't get to watch last night. We were tied up with some things. But, yes, I would agree with that. All right. That's Lamb's Lid on things for today. Uh, Tomorrow, Brian Kilmeade, the AC Report, and more. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Good day.